BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, Simon. What's up with you, big, bad, beautiful self? Well, I'm still, uh, I'm still recovering from the academic feast yes. that you and I enjoyed. <laughs> I took you to Cambridge. I, I, I knew it was somewhere <laughs> illustrious. I thought it was Oxford we went. Excuse me. Sorry. To other place. Well, there's Manchester, top of the tree, and then there's... Where did, you, where did you go? Warwick. Manchester, Then Warwick. there's Exeter and yeah. Bristol. Yeah. So we had to... We, we, spent, we spent an evening in Cambridge where all the people that couldn't get into Manchester, Warwick, Exeter or Bristol now hang out. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and they, they swan around. Yes. We should say that we were, we, we were officially the guests of the good lady Professor Her indoors. Did they know who we were? Did, or did oh. they just say, okay, it's fine, they're, they're, it's a plus two? Can I ask you a question? Why on earth would a seat of great learning and knowledge have any idea who we are? That's true. So maybe they just, on, they, a, on a Monday, they just allow anyone in. Yeah, well, firstly, it wasn't a Monday. Oh, wasn't it? When no, was it? it was a Wednesday. Oh, okay. So it felt okay. Yeah, felt it was like a Wednesday. A I mean, as is always the case, you missed the train, but you arrived there just in time. But I showed you the pub where they invented DNA. I know they didn't actually invent it. They announced that they, they announced that they had invented DNA or yes. that they had discovered DNA. And then, we had a, and then we had it. And then anyway, then we had this very posh meal at the end of which is passed around the table, and I'm not making this up. No, this is very strange. The Ram's Horn of Snuff. Yeah, it's actually an... It sounds like a death metal band, right? It's an oryx, isn't it? An oryx? Or an onyx. With the... No, an onyx. What? It's a, horn. it's a ram's horn. It's not. It is a ram's horn. I'm just going to look it up now. An onyx is a stone, yeah. It's an... I think an... It is an ancient ram's horn of snuff. Yeah, an oryx. It's, yeah. it's an oryx. An oryx is... Uh, yeah, three of them are native to the arid parts of Africa. Uh, but hang on, did somebody tell you that that's what it was the horn yes, of? Yes, it's a horn of an oryx. How, sorry, did you have this conversation with somebody? I did. The guy who was next to me, who was like organ master. Yes. He said... Big it, fan. It's a ram's horn. It's not a ram's horn. It's an oryx horn. And you, if you're going to take snuff, you mm -hmm. have to... Which I did not. No, because it's a crazy thing to do. It's a crazy thing to Why do. Why would you want to... Sniff. You're allergic to that kind of thing. <laughs> That's right. yeah. mm. Of course, yes. With with your bronchial system, I yes. think that would have been a very bad idea. It was a twisted oryx <laughs> horn, and it had a little thing of stuff, and it had a little silver thing to break the crust, and then and a rake <laughs> to rake it smooth, and then it's it had like a, a dabber to dab it like flat. a like a little spider's rake for the yeah. little god for his spider, and then and that was good. So yes, anyway, that was that was very that was very it was very good fun. Thank it's you. as close as we're going to get to ever going to Hogwarts. It was it was a bit Hogwarts, wasn't it? And there's and there's a there's a and there's a picture a painting the only painting of Christopher Marlowe, which it turns out might not be Christopher Marlowe. Which is a little bit disappointing for everybody, well, for all the Marlowe fans. It was a painting of somebody who looked like they might be Christopher Marlowe, so they've decided that's who. And all the, and all the pa paintings on the wall of assorted bishops of London, they all looked like they were in Spandau Ballet <laughs> with voluminous white shirts. <laughs> did you say, did you ask somebody of high academic esteem why it was that we were surrounded by portraits of Spandau Ballet and they just during went, their Through the Barricades period? Eh? What's your favourite Spandau song? Work till you're muscle bound. Oh, really? Yeah, and then I played it, and then it sounds a bit rubbish. Yeah, I like creative. communication. 
Communication. 80s pop is going to come up later on. It, it's, it wouldn't be a show if it didn't. When we talk to Charlie's Thron and Seth Rogen, 80s pop is going to be... Are you sticking with Thron? Because you, there is a thing in the interview, isn't there, about that? Yeah, there is a thing about the pronunciation, which does come up All right. in the interview, that she does... <clears throat> because she spent so long in America, yeah. and they don't cope well with foreign words, yeah. she's obviously got used to... Theron rhymes with Heron. Yeah. But exactly. here, we have higher standards and we go back to the Afrikaans. So to bring that other thing to a close, I want to say thank you for coming. And yes. You're honoured to, to be there. Yes. It's now, you now have to invite me to a equally, well, actually, the, the good lady ceramicist has to, you know, it's, it's reciprocal. Okay. Well, you can come for a burger um, later on today. If veggie you burger? If you, if you want, yeah. Yeah, veggie burger's a bad thing. Um, but they're getting better. Yeah, but that's a very low benchmark. The ones I mean, made out of plants are really good. The vegan burgers are Well, all amazing. veggie burgers are made out of plants. That's what makes them veggie burgers. No, they could be made out of uh, fruit. That's a plant. It's fruit. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I want to get on right, with... If it, okay, if it doesn't walk around, it's a plant. Can we get on with this? We, we can do. It could, be, it could be a tree. A tree's not a plant. So a tree's a plant. Anyway. Of course it's a plant. Would you think it's a bird? Yeah. You think a tree is a flight? An email from Paul Sharp. <clears throat> in the spirit of the recent National Birdsong Day, ah, very I'm good. sorry about that very, very long preamble, and as a sort of sequel to the now legendary Jazz Pigeon, I was compelled to get in touch with a particular avian melody I recently discovered that actually connects to the movie world. Um, I must say Jazz Pigeon is one of our greatest. It is. And we should say that it wasn't, us. We have no wasn't us who did it. But we take the credit for it. I made my discovery during an Easter stay with a friend in rural Norfolk when I was awoken at an ungodly hour by the crowing of a rooster, or should I say cockerel if it's in England. I don't know, we understand. This is from we, Paul. We, we, understand, we, we understand both ways. Paul is in Bondi in Australia. Oh, OK. My first thoughts were of putting the wretched fowl out of its misery, but upon the second or third crow I recognised greatness and grabbed my phone to make a recording. I've since laid it up with the original score for your listening pleasure. In hindsight, it makes you wonder whether Morricone was in fact influenced by a rooster in the first place. This is what Paul from Bondi in Australia has sent us. Sorry, can I just say, if that doesn't make Pick of the Week, someone's not doing their job. (laughs) What's Pick of the the Week, then? You know what Pick of the Week is. That is very good. Paul, thank you very much indeed, who was suitably impressed. Can we we play it again? It's the association of the fact that the rooster should work with Ennio Morricone. That's just great. Play it again. It, I have to say, listening to it, it does actually sound that somebody will now write in and go, yes, of course, Morricone was influenced by a rooster. It'll be a very well-known fact that we don't know. Can we hear it again? Magnificent. That is really magnificent. 
I think there's an album, there's, there's definitely an album that needs to be done. Uh, if we could get the rights, I don't think it, Enya would bother. Birds sing songs from the <clears> films. <throat> yeah. But I, I think Jazz Pigeon is just a great creation. The trouble is there's so many different uh, people that we'd have to get permission from that actually we'd give up and go, oh, I can't be bothered. I think the pigeons would be fine, wouldn't they? The pigeons would be fine. I think it's the Dave Brubeck and all the other assorted artists. Oh, he'd be fine. Do you think? Yeah. I would just see what you're saying, just release it anyway? Yes. I think, you know, uh, publish and be damned. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for sending that and for all your hard work, which we'll take all the glory for. An email from Tim Sycamore. Hello, Tim. In 10 years of wittertainment consumption, I've never before felt the need to contact you, but a dream last night has finally convinced me to put pixels to screen. It starred your very own Jason, hello to Jason, and one Donald Trump. Really? American president. In the aftermath of a heated Twitter exchange between the two. My dream didn't go into the details of exactly what the argument was about, only that Jason won it, and that his reward was the opportunity in front of a large audience to give Donald Trump a haircut. <laughs> this being my dream, I had the best seat in the house, right next to the action, with a great view as Jason began to unravel Donald's complicated hair in order to work out where it started and ended and which bits to snip. There was much laughter from the assembled crowd and plenty of banter between the two. All in all, the event proceeded in good humour and Trump finished the evening looking a bit more sensible. In an ideal world, I'd have woken up at this point with a vaguely optimistic, hopeful feeling. But unfortunately, Jason had other ideas. And having finished with the president, he leant over to me and to my great surprise started to trim my fringe as well. I was outraged. What the hell do you think you're doing, Isaacs? I yelled then began a rant about the morality of cutting a person's hair without their consent, an outburst which culminated in my snatching the scissors out of his hand and throwing them out of a nearby window. Needless to say, this completely ruined the mood in the room, and as a crestfallen Jason left to retrieve his scissors, Donald came over to console me and started sympathetically rubbing my back, at which point, thankfully, I woke up. Reflecting on all this after a good breakfast... I think I may have overreacted slightly to Jason's attempt to give me a free haircut and would like to take this opportunity to formally apologise to him on the show. It won't happen again, I hope. Yours apologetically, Tim Sycamore. I, I'm sure we'll have someone, a podcaster, listening who can interpret that dream, like you, Joseph. Yeah, can I, th this thing about things that people do in dreams, right, and then apologising for them in the real world. Yes. Okay. Have you ever apologised for something that happened in a dream? No. Okay. I know. I'm sure you will have done. There was one particular occasion. Yes. Right. When um, uh, I was asleep, right? And I was... As, as one is. As one is. And I was woken by the good lady, Professor Her indoors, who jammed me really hard in the... I went, what? She went, I was just having a dream in which you were really horrible. And I went... Sorry. Classic. And then went back to sleep. <laughs> so I have apologised for something that I did in someone else's dream. Really? Yes. Apparently, th those who know about these things yeah. say that this dream, if anything... Someone ringing me, for heaven's sake. I'm on the... Go away. I'm on... Oh, it's my wife. Okay. <laughs> she ringing to tell you off about something you did in a dream. Yeah. <laughs> if she was able to listen to a podcast live, I'm sure that would... <laughs> Apparently, this dream is about power. Hang on, have you control? Where are you getting this from? And change in life. Okay. So, Tim Sycamore is 
encountering change in his life. Right. And that change is represented by Trump and Jason in some peculiar way. Isn't it represented by the hair being cut? Well, that is the that is the that is the action by which change is being suggested, but the agents of change are Trump and Jason and the scissors. Okay, which is clearly Freudian. No, I don't. You know what Freudian means? When you say one thing but mean your mother. Good. That's a, that's very good. Well, my theory, as I have expo- explained before, my theory about dreams is very clear. They mean nothing. <laughs> they mean absolutely nothing. And it's random stuff. Your brain is <laughs> exactly. full of a whole bunch of jumbly, jumbly exactly. nonsense. Exactly. And it fires this out. And you go, wow, what's the significance? Because my guinea pig has just produced a pint of Guinness, which has been consumed by my grandmother. It doesn't mean anything. Nothing. You don't make a, you don't make a fortune writing a, a book saying all that. That's right. What's the best dream you've ever had? Oh, I, oh, I can't remember any of them. Do you, do you, do you genuinely, Gen- gen- generally remember, remember dreams? No. Never. I've hardly ever remembered dreams. Okay. So you, so you don't dream like, because you, because you, you also, no, don't look at me like that. What? Because you, you're also a writer. Yes. No, no, no. Oh, I see. There was, well, yeah. I got a book out of a dream once, apart from that. I just set them up and you tee them but up. I'm going to mention it and then. Puppet master. It's not, it's not a thing. He doesn't have it's to a answer proper what, answer to a proper question. It's a proper answer to a proper question. Yes, okay. He's all right I, so far. I had a dream. Honestly, I just feel like you're stooge. Go on. That I was queuing up to go to prison and that I knew that I was going to prison for something that my grandfather had done and that he had been a deserter in the First World War, which can I say for the record, he wasn't. But I dreamt that he was and... It had only just been discovered, and so therefore I had to go to prison in his place. So you had to take the blame. That's right. Well, that's what the book. Yeah, exactly right. So I had to take. Don't the blame. spoil it. And so, and so, because of that, and that, and that was that was the beginning. And then the the good lady ceramicist there indoors said, "You should write." A story that's exactly. That. So there we go. So it was a nice. I thought I was doing really well. I thought you fumbled the ball several times. I did, I did slightly, did, but really. I completely forgotten about the dream. That's why. <laughs> anyway, I think that I think that was quite entertaining. Has the ram's horn of snuff gone to your head? I could, I could, I could do it with an oryx worth of snuff. Mm. Can I just tell you, no. To be honest, snuff always has occurred to me as the most stupid idea of all time. It's tobacco, right? Yeah, but why would you? Why would you sniff tobacco up your nose? What is the point of that? No, I know. I mean, I, 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 I have the same, I have the same feeling. But then it's you not... don't. But then you don't smoke either, which no. I don't either. So. No. Anyway, that so snuff. It's not for us. Thank you very much indeed. No. Yeah, but there you might... are stepping all over eggs at the moment, aren't you? You're just... all over eggs. Yeah, you're like stepping on eggs. What? What? Why are you? That's being... not a saying. Stepping on eggs. It's is that a... a saying. Excuse me, Robin. Is that a saying? Treading on eggs. Eggshells. Egg yeah. Walking on eggshells, not eggs. No one walks on eggs. That's ludicrous. And sorry, what is an eggshell round? Yeah, eggshells. But the whole thing about an eggshell is you can't walk on it because it's so it's so uh, crumply tender. Yeah, and as is an egg. No one says walking on eggs. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's not. Egg is inside the eggshell. It's fragile and all that. Anyway, on with the show. I went to the head of Radio 1 Music right, right and said, I want to play stuff from this album, yeah. the Moby album, play. And he said, we're not going to be playing that. Really? Yeah. And so we didn't. And then it was a big hit. And did you then start playing it? That, yeah. And then we started playing. <laughs> then, then we started playing it. But it was incredibly successful. 
I really yeah. like it. I mean, there, it was something like um, there are loads and loads of tracks from it that you will know from movies, TV adverts, shows, adverts, you know, everything. So, nice even, so even if you, even, I've never met him, what what is his name? Moby. Uh, it's it's oh. Now you, it's Melville. He's related. Oh, Melville. Okay. He, yes, he is, and he is related. related to Herman Melville. He is. He is. Well, sorry, that's related. not a joke. He no, actually is. No, it's not a joke. He actually is. Wow, I didn't know. Hence is hence a rather good nickname. Uh, very good. I feel like I have already learned something, and we're only one minute into the show. Uh, Nick Cheeseman has been on. By the way, hello. By the hello, way, Nick. and it's very nice to see you. No, that's you, Mark. I'm oh, sorry. Not sorry, Nick Cheeseman. Sorry. Yeah. Um, we got a good show lined up, and we got Charlie's Thron turning up and we got Seth Rogen turning up to talk about their big new movie and the pronunciation of her name again so Nick says um, being quiet in the cinema you know not talking eating noiselessly that kind of thing has always been something to which I have attempted to adhere since long before the code was even a silent twinkle in one's eye (laughs) aren't twinkles always silent no twinkle can go I have come to realise now having my own kids that they do not appear to hold this view and seem oblivious to the fact that the constant rustling of sweet packets impacts on other people's enjoyment of the film. It also makes me hypersensitive to the noise that they are making, as I feel people are looking to me to quash these irritants. I've tried emptying sweets into sandwich bags at home before heading out to the cinema, but these bags, it turns out, are even noisier than the original Yeah, you mean the the, the sort of sealable bags? Yeah. Yeah. It was with some trepidation, therefore, that we headed to see Avengers Endgame last Saturday morning with bags of non-individually wrapped sweets pocketed. We were about to leave the house when I suddenly had a brainwave. I ran upstairs and grabbed something from the bedroom drawer. Okay. We arrived at our local cinema just in time for a final bathroom break before settling down to the three-hour, one-minute movie marathon. We crept in as planned during the final trailer before the film to minimise the chance of having to have a loo break. And I proceeded to open and empty the sweets into three of my clean but well-used socks taken from said bedroom drawer to the horror of my 13 and 11-year-olds. Bringing sweets in in socks. Never. This, this is a new one. Never has one seen so much face palming from the 13-year-old. <laughs> my 11-year-old, however, was more vocal. <laughs> you put the sweets in your socks, socks, he exclaimed loudly to much amusement from those seated around us. The sweets were consumed and enjoyed noiselessly, <laughs> and apart from the occasional uh, furball, <laughs> the bags was deemed a resounding success by myself, at least. I was wondering if anyone else has ever resorted to using items of clothing or even underwear to deaden the sound. Yours, Nick Cheese. I have to say that is, uh, on the one hand, I can see, and yes, it makes sense. On the other hand, no. I'm, uh, I think I'd rather make a slight rustle from my sandwich bag yeah. than to eat uh, boiled sweets from a sock of any I mean, kind. Yeah, I mean, surely the, the problem is, no matter how, I mean, even if it's a new sock, right, that has never been on your foot, surely if you put if you put a sweet into it, doesn't it? have fibres on it, yeah. inevitably. Yeah, exactly. Even what? a jelly baby or something like that. It's not, it's not, yeah. I'm not sure, Nick. It's a, it's a weird gonna, one. I don't think that's a trend. Well, but he says if anyone else has resorted to eating food out of clothing... Or underwear to deaden the sound in a cinema. I mean, to be honest with you, the good you old the good old fashioned paper bag is probably the less rusty. It's certainly less rusty than plastic bags. Plus, it's more eco friendly. Eight five zero five eight mayo at bbc.co.uk. If you want to tweet us, we're at Wittertainment. If you want to watch the show live, what a thrill that is! Go to the Five Live website. Follow all the instructions. Though there is something slightly odd 
going on at the moment so that when I'm speaking, it cuts to me. When you speak, it cuts, cuts to me. You. And when there's a few moments of silence and it goes to a wide shot, the studio is empty. What, on the camera? Yeah, we've actually disappeared. So it's like we're... It's like a ghostly thing. Yeah, it's like we're vampires. Looking but we can't in, see in mirrors. Yeah, that's what it is. Very good. So I'm now going to not say anything, and if you don't say anything, so we can see if we can make it happen. Shaving must be no, very... No, that's the whole point, you don't say anything. Okay, see if you can... Oh, sorry. See if you can manage that. Yep, cut to the wide shot, and uh, we disappeared. It's also completely black screen, so it's going all crazy. Anyway, the radio continu- continues in all its glory. <laughs> Uh, 85058, mail at bbc.co.uk if you've ever eaten sweets in a cinema out of your pants or anything else. (laughs) Uh, Steph, I'm emailing to ask for an addition to your Ten Commandments. My husband Tom, our bump and I, went to see Avengers Endgame last Thursday on its first full day of release to avoid spoilers. We've been waiting for it what seemed like an age, both being fans of Marvel. Knowing the length of the film and that a baby would be pressing on my bladder, I decided to make a tactical loo break before the film started. Whilst in the cubicle, a mother and her 10-year-old son came in, who had obviously just seen the film. Right. She said, what did you think? To which he replied, I'm so glad that... (laughs) But I'm really sad... (laughs) (laughs) On hearing this, I mustered... As Mika call of, please stop, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> they carried on, so I repeated my, please, I haven't seen it yet. The mum quickly stopped her son talking, but the damage had been done. We went into the screen, and despite the spoilers, I absolutely loved it. Can we add a commandment saying, please don't discuss the film until out of earshot of movie goes? Uh, and a what's up to my husband, Tom, because he's a Mahusif fan. Similarly, James Spires aged 11 and three quarters, and Alison Spires, possibly Spears, aged 41, aged 11, no, aged 41 and 11 twelfths. Yeah. I went with my son to see Avengers Endgame on Sunday. We were going to send a review, but didn't really think there was anything that we could say that isn't a spoiler or hasn't already been said. Having said that, short review by James is included below. Review by James. Go ahead. It's awesome. Thank you, James. However, on exiting the cinema, we were met with a code violation dilemma for which we need guidance. We are both big fans of the MCU and we had a lot to process. Right. Physically and emotionally drained by the whole experience, we needed to vent. Vent. However, our local multiplex was basically showing back-to-back, wall-to-wall endgame. Therefore, as we left our screening, the lobby was full of cinema goers on their way into other screenings of the same film. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mindful of the scene in The Simpsons where... Homer spoils the parental reveal in Empire Strikes Back. We tempered our enthusiasm and withheld our post-movie debrief until we were outside. But this left us wondering how far from the cinema, where there might be people on their way into the same film, is it safe to start discussing the film? We were very careful in what we said while on the street outside, also in the coffee shop next to the cinema, and indeed on the bus home, waiting until we were back in our own house with the door shut before discussing any specifics. So our question is this. For a widely anticipated movie such as Endgame, where spoilers are a big deal, how far away from a cinema does the discussion exclusion zone extend? Well, there's an interesting answer to this. I ran, my friend Jack Howard, who you've met, um, uh, and I, whenever I say you say who's Jack Howard, and I explain to you who he is. Um, I called him uh, after I, he saw Avengers Endgame before me because he saw it at the press screening, and I didn't see it till I was I saw it in a public screening on a Thursday morning. And I called him and I said, oh, Jack, I've just seen, uh, you know, Avengers Endgame because he's a huge Avengers fan. Can we talk about it? And I noticed that he was being very um, cagey. And I said, 
what, what, you, you're, 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 you're being very cagey. What is it? He said, I'm on a train and uh, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone else. I said, but Jack, they don't know what you're talking about because, you know, and he said, well, they might do. And I thought, actually, that's, that's very uh, thoughtful. He was actually on a train. I was the person who was saying Avengers Endgame, but he was conscious of the fact that some passengers on the train might clock that that's what he was talking about. So he was, you know. So we're no clearer, but basically, just wait until you're in the in your own house with the door shut and the lights off. Yes, and it's also quite a, it's quite a good idea to ask if you're in a room. Has everyone here seen the film? Because I mean, I a friends of mine came down some time ago when uh, two other people who are in, in my family were halfway through Breaking Bad, and they said, "Do you like Breaking Bad?" And the other friend said, "Yeah." Have you got to the bit where? And then said the bit where, and where the thing... tears were involved. It was no. Uh, box office top ten this week at forty nine, Don Bass. <laughs> That's the most we've gone. Which is kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's a parodic political satire, which I think has shades of uh, Emir Kusturitska about it. I quite liked it. We reviewed it sort of quite briefly last week. Um, uh, an email from Kiev, Ukraine. From yes, Daria. I'm writing to you from. Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. Yeah, I went to see Donbass in October 2018, as soon as the movie came out, and I had a chance to meet the director, Sergei Loznitsa. Yeah, I he think Loznitsa, surely. Fair enough. Brief Q&A after the screening. A truly impressing but very hard movie. Yeah. Sometimes you just want to hide or escape because some of the scenes disgust you. This picture is unbelievably true about people in society without any humanistic values. Someone from the audience after the film told the director that there are so many emotions, it makes you sick. And this is an exact feeling it gives you, but at the same time, it makes... It amazes you with all its caricature, black satire, and hyper... and hyperbolism... hyperbolism... Hyperbole. No, hyperbolism. But that is hyperbole. Well, it says hyperbolism. Okay, but that can I say the writer is writing from Ukraine? Uh, yeah, so and he's, he's doing a lot better with hyperbolism than 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 we do in English. At thirty three, Bel Canto. <laughs> we literally cover forty nine to thirty three. Yeah. We'll be at ten in a I moment. I thought Bel Canto was all over the place, and despite the fact that it has Julianne Moore, who I you know I often think can do no wrong. It's, I mean, it's adapted from a book. You've read the book, right? I have, yes. A long and you time said ago. the book was it's quite engaging and good. moving. Well, the film really isn't. The film really did seem to be this kind of weird, cheesy soap opera that was juggling, on the one hand, you know, guerrilla hostage situation with, on the other hand, the joy of uh, falling in love and opera. And it just, and I'm, I'm, all those elements are apparently in the book. But on screen, they were just rendered in a way which was quite cringingly bad. Michael Kerrigan in Beverly, East Yorkshire. Yep. Where do I start with Belcanto? Easily passed the six laugh test solely due to how <laughs> insufferably awful it was. <laughs> Julianne Moore is a great actor. What was she thinking taking this role? Was it a payday she couldn't refuse? She almost looked embarrassed when she lip synced her first operatic number. Yeah, I have to do the, the, I op- cried the opera with singing is very, very lip synced. My wife told me off for being disrespectful to the rest of the cinema goers at the fine Parkway Cinema in Beverly, but I couldn't help it. Luckily, only two other people had to endure it with us. That's the film, not my code-breaking behaviour. Bel Canto is definitely in my top ten worst films I've ever seen. I've decided (laughs) I'm not giving it the lowest score uh, I can because it was entertaining in ways it wasn't meant to be. To be fair, I'd rather watch a film that I hate than one that is simply meh because at least the former has sparked a reaction. Bel Canto was a brilliantly awful two out of ten. So into the top ten. So basically we're going to do the number ten and the number one. Yeah, because those are the two that we're... we're, I mean, we'll tell you what all the other numbers are. We will. But it's eighth grade at number ten and I'm going to go first and then you're going to go. Okay, go ahead. That's the way it is. 
Rebecca Piper, I've been waiting for a UK release of 8th Grade since I first heard of the film back in August from friends in the US. Honestly, I thought it was never going to happen. However, yesterday I found myself in an almost empty screening at my local multiplex. It's a shame that this film is being released the same week as Avengers Endgame, although I did love that film as well. But I suppose it's better than no release at all. Being 20 years old, I guess I would be considered as the slightly older generation who are represented in this film. However, tears came to my eyes at some points in the film, not because it was sad, although there are sad moments, but simply because I related to the character of Kayla so much. This relatability not only came from the story and things that happened to Kayla, but also the incredible performances, particularly from Elsie Fisher and the script. Teenagers actually spoke and acted like teenagers in this film. The realism this, uh, that this is portrayed is definitely something to be applauded. I can't wait to see where Bo Burnham's career as a director goes from here. Conrad Simpson is 16 and is in Nottingham. As a teenager, I was sceptical of eighth grade at first. So many coming-of-age films directed at adolescents have been praised by critics and they've ended up being pretty underwhelming for teenagers actually growing up in the modern age, see the age of 17. Compliments like, they speak like real children, translate to me as the dialogue is cringe-inducing and is based on some 50-year-old's idea of how teenagers actually speak. I was certain eighth grade was going to be just like this and leave me annoyed and disappointed in Bo Burnham, who shows us some of my favourite comedic endeavours. I'm delighted to say that this film went above my expectations so much, it's now my favourite film of the year. Oh, great. Somehow the story of this 13-year-old girl living in the United States elicited tears from me, and I'm not like Kermode. The last time I cried at the movies was Columbus in October, so it's fair to say I was astonished at the emotional impact this had on me. We will be the first generation to grow up with an all-encompassing visual record of our every year, uh, whether it's through Facebook of our, or parents or Instagram profiles or some of our failed attempts at being a YouTuber. I won't spoil the ending, but it captured that feeling of remembering the person you once were and coming to terms with the fact that you are no longer them. But that does not mean that you are a disappointment to them. I foresee this film being like Heather's, doing badly at the box office, but being fondly remembered by everyone who was introduced to it on video. That kind of legacy is what Burnham deserves for making the first film that properly captures the feelings of my generation. Daniel Collins, age 17. Despite some flaws, I loved it from being overwhelmed in joy by the wonderful score to being moved and crying by the sheer humanity of the performances to one of the most disturbing scenes I've ever sat through. Unlike its rendition of the US national anthem, eighth grade doesn't just hit the right notes, it appropriates them perfectly from the zeitgeist and plays them in exactly the right order, creating what I believe to be one of the most emotionally impactful films of recent times. Leo is 19. Thank you, Leo. Um, I'm 19. I'm from London. Going into the film, I was ready to dislike it. I had been a huge fan of Bo Burnham growing up, but was suspicious that the film had been overhyped in reviews. Needless to say, the film blew me away. This perfectly judged, poignant piece of cinema understands and empathises with what it's like to grow up in the age of social media. Being 19, I have grown up consumed in the Snapchat and Instagram world. I can remember so distinctly the, the anxiety of that age and the film represents this so perfectly. Not only representing a truth that people of my generation recognise, but to allow adults who do not understand that social, digital world to understand what it feels like. The performances are wonderfully empathetic, funny and heartfelt. The score ingeniously invites the audience into the world she inhabits. A debut masterpiece by Bo that felt like a warm hug to my younger self and reminds us all how amazing and strong kids are. See, I think it's... It really is one of the the best films of the year. It came out in America last year, some time ago. 
Um, and, uh, you know, famously featured on Barack Obama's list of his uh, favourite films of the year, along with, as, as I said before, Annihilation, which tells you something about his, you know, his wide-ranging uh, movie-going habits. I think the real genius of it is that, as Bo Burnham says, it's a depiction of uh, kids who have been described as um, uh, self-obsessed, who are in fact self-conscious, who have, again, to quote the writer-director, grown up in a world which they did not create, in which they are kind of forced to be on show through uh, the internet. And it's, um, I think it's brilliant, partly because it's, completely empathises with their environment. You can tell that Burnham has properly researched this, that he knows the characters of whom he speaks and about whom the, you know, the, the, around whom the drama is, is centred. And, and he loves and cares about them in a way that doesn't matter who you are. I mean, as, you know, as a 56-year-old man, I looked at this you know, eighth-grade American student and shared the pain and anguish because the film makes you see, like all great coming of age movies, you know, whether you're going back to, you know, 400 blows or moonlight, what the film does is put you in their position. And I think Anna Meredith's score is just knockout. It's so brilliant because it's, it's taking the internal life of this character who in public speaks very little, but speaks, you know, on the internet, apparently to herself and it really gives you the sense of the, 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 the huge, almost operatic emotional world she lives in. I love it to pieces. So we're going to go through, uh, we're going to zoom through these and end up at Endgame. In just go ahead. Minute. Okay. Greta is at nine. Haven't seen it. Missing Link is at eight. Quite good fun. Enjoyed it and laughed a lot. Wild Rose is at seven. Fantastic central performance and brilliant to see a country and western movie set in Glasgow. Captain Marvel at six. It's going to lead us into Avengers Endgame. Uh, Shazam at five. I thought it was funnier than I expected it to be, although it was somewhat overlong. Red Joan at four. Haven't seen it. Wonder Park at three. Haven't seen it. Dumbo at two. Preferred the cartoon. Which brings us to... Number well one. done, instantly. That is the swiftest we've ever done. We used to do that. Day. We used to do that every <laughs> week. Back on the days when we were on 1FM. Avengers Endgame is at number one. So, Saskia. Last night I watched Cinematic History Unfold. I watched Avengers Endgame. Alongside a group of friends, we entered the cinema for a double bill of Infinity Game and then Endgame. Infinity War. Infinity War. Endgame. Yeah, it's just changed. Infinity that. War. Through. Infinity Game and End War. To precede all of this, it should be known that three of us had done a four-day Marvel marathon watching approximately 10 hours of MCU screen time each day Wow! over the holidays. We then had to return to school, but with the knowledge that the first Saturday back we get to watch the two films as an event, suffice to say, we're fans. Having dodged any and all spoilers possible, Endgame was pretty much a perfect cinematic experience. As the Marvel logo came up at the beginning, the audience broke into wild applause, a rarity in our cinema, at the sheer joy of being there. This applause happened three more times during the film, and then finally again at the end credits. It is beautiful. The film is a bittersweet ending, tying off of a chapter of my adolescence in three hours that seemed to go by far too quickly. Uh, Once again, I was crying a general occurrence when I watch films, particularly MCU ones, but unlike with Infinity War, I was crying for a variety of reasons. Despair, stress, but also unbridled joy. Brilliant. There were times when tears filled my eyes as my favourite characters made a decade of storytelling come full circle. There were also tears of laughter as the film was filled with a surprising amount of much-needed humour to add some levity to the experience. Whilst uh, some might find the plot somewhat convoluted or flimsy, I enjoyed it so much more for those reasons. To me, it was Marvel fully 
returning to its comic book roots. As the final credits came up, the theatre broke into applause for the final time. All I can say is that I am so incredibly grateful to have seen this in, in the cinema, to have grown up watching these films unfold before me each year. It truly felt like the perfect send-off to my childhood. As I left the theatre with my friends... We were remarking on how future generations won't know the excitement we felt walking in or the euphoric sadness that we felt walking out. They won't know what it was like to watch it without its plot already being embedded in pop culture, which is which it's sure to be. So once again, I'm forever grateful to have grown up alongside the Marvel Cinematic Universe and to have witnessed this as I did. It is a memory I will cherish forever. Very good. Ellie, aged 13, thank you for wading through the heap of Endgame correspondence to read my email. I'm a regular cinema goer that sees everything from animations like Lego Movie 2 and Missing Link to biopics like Bohemian Rhapsody and Stan and Ollie. From this smorgasbord of cinema, I don't think I'd even heard of the word smorgasbord when I was 13. I love that word. The MCU has always been my favourite. I have been eagerly awaiting this instalment since Infinity War, watching theory videos, reading articles and interviews, anticipating the new trailers and posters and frantically messaging on my year group's Marvel group chat, discussing what we thought was going to happen. I settled down to watch the film in my Boys Avengers t-shirt. None of the high street stores sell Marvel clothing in the women's department, but there is plenty in the men's. Me and my mum are in the process of getting this changed, says Ellie. Very good. And I went through every emotion possible in three hours. I adored it. The characters were in-depth, Rather than just there to fill the screen, the cast was diverse with a huge number of female characters, which had always been one of the reasons I love Marvel so much. The humour was funny rather than being forced to break the tension. The effects very stunning and the plot made me and the plot made sense. If you're invested in the MCU, then you will understand what is going on with the Infinity Stones and the quantum realm and all that. But I can see why people who weren't might find some elements confusing. I did have one criticism with the film, which I won't mention as it gives too much of the plot away. See, this is an educated crowd. Very good. I didn't see the ending coming and didn't think the film could be any shorter. I completely adored this addition to the much beloved MCU. And I'm already slightly sad I may never go and see an Avengers film again. Tickety Tonkin, so there are so many. We'll get to some more, but we'll run out of time before the news and sports. So, the, I mean, the key thing in that is two things that we that we talked about in the review. I know the review that we did last week was long, but there is a reason for it because because it is a significant thing. Firstly, that amidst everything that's going on, the Russos do manage to keep their eye on characters, and you do. You, it's absolutely crucial that the reason this series works is because you like the characters, you like the interaction between the characters, the balance of um, of humour and seriousness. It's a film made by people taking the subject matter seriously, but also understanding how to leaven it with, um, you know, sparky dialogue, between them, which, which isn't nodding and winking at the audience, but is actually putting you in the company of people whose interaction and company you like. Um, as I said, it's a three-act film. And, you know, I was particularly impressed by the opening act because I did think they they took quite a lot of risks in the way in which they opened it. But um, if you've grown up with 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 those characters, which I haven't, so I'm not in the, you know, core demographic, if you've grown up with them, um, what a terrific thing for that series to end in that very, very satisfying way. And even if you haven't, even if like me, you're kind of you're you know you're many generations out, I still think that what that saw me through it, what saw me through this three-hour behemoth of bringing together you know all these sort of tying up all these loose ends, is that no matter what's going on, it does keep its eye on characters first and foremost, and it does it has an ending, um, you know it 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 dares to be final. 
and it does take some risks, which whenever you're talking about this kind of uh, you know franchise fare, any risks at all are to be congratulated. I think it's a really pretty damn good piece of work. Just want to point out, just for the news and sport, I think the average age of our correspondent so far has been about 15 or 16. Yes, I would like think that. that would be about right. For Harry the, for... Davis is 13. Uh, is that was that both for Avengers? Well, I mean, obviously, eighth grade is a fifteen certificate film, so yeah. But I would think ninety percent of the correspondence has been from teenagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harry Davis is thirteen. I'm a short term listener, first time emailer. Introduced to your church by my dad, I went to see Avengers Endgame last Friday with nervous anticipation, bags of expectation. The film began, the entire theatre was plunged into darkness and scatters of nervous chatter were dotted around the theatre. As the opening scene began, silence fell and from then on until around the halfway point we were dragged into a whirlwind ride of laughter, emotion and shock. I was totally engrossed until an hour and a half into the movie when a shout broke out from the doorway. A fellow cinema goer had walked out of an earlier screening burst into our screening and proudly announced for everyone to hear uh, a significant moment that no. happened, a big kind of reveal moment in the third act, spoiling the movie for the majority of the audience. Where was this? Um, we don't have an airport. That's unbelievable. <laughs> a capital crime. Um, brushing it aside, I thought it was an assumption from someone in the in the row behind me. I pushed it to the back of my mind. Uh, with exp- uh, we'll leave that bit out and continued to be swept up in the incredible film from start to finish I was on the edge of my seat I laughed I cried I cheered and clapped this film was a thoroughly good time at the movies it makes it takes a really good film to be not altered by a devastating spoiler at half time to make an entire audience cheer repeatedly in the third act and to finish off an 11 year franchise in a worthy way thank you Harry yeah I mean well I think as you quite rightly said um that does speak volumes about the film uh, and its ability to withstand that. And w- what an unbelievably mean spirit. It's the kind of thing that should get you banned from a cinema, isn't it? If you, yeah, if, if, you, it, if you're that kind of person, you don't deserve films. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we will get to as much of the correspondence and thank you for all of it. And like I said, the average age of our correspondent, both for eighth grade and for Avengers Endgame, is about 16. I'd like to say that's because we're down like with that. the kids by being his Probably... Is it? It's probably just to the quality of the listenership. And this is a groundbreaking podcast as well. Uh, if you, I know you might be listening, you know, every week on a regular basis to hear it live, but actually it has extra bits and pieces if you download the podcast. It does. There's a long preamble section where we talk about anything yes. that we're allowed to talk about. And, and a long a post-amble. Post yeah, where we carry on the kind of meaningless waffle. <laughs> So, so download the podcast if you're not getting enough meaningless waffle. Exactly right. Okay. Exactly right. 85058 mail at uk. If you're watching on the live stream, it has now been sorted so that when it cuts to the wide shot, we are actually still there. It's a shame, though, because I quite like the ghostly thing. The fact that we weren't there. Yeah. But during the news, we men came elsewhere. And, and fiddled and they sorted it all out. Uh, more reviews still to come and your correspondence uh, is very welcome. Mayo at bbc.co.uk. The long shot is out today. We'll find out what Mark makes of it in a moment and what some of you think of it because the emails have come in on that subject and thank you for your reviews. It stars Charlize Thron and Seth Rogen and we'll hear from them after this clip. But how does that work with you? Do you like... Do you like date? Uh, yeah, I date. Generally, you know, with people who have similar lifestyles to me, people who travel a lot. It's hard to... Keep those things alive. I'm, I 
I mean, who wants to follow me around the world and hope I have five minutes to be affectionate? Yeah. And honestly, guys don't really want to date women who are more powerful than them. You gonna ask why I'm still single? No, I get it. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, it adds up. And that's a clip from Long Shot, and it stars Seth Rogen. Hello, Seth. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. And the last time Charlize was on the program, which was in 2012 for Snow White, you said Charlize Thron. And ever since then, I've been saying Thron, and I was told yesterday I got it wrong. No. No, no, no. You did a great job. That was it. But they said, no, it rhymes with Heron. And I'm thinking, well, last time I spoke to you, which you won't remember, but I remember very well you said Thron. Listen. Rhymes with prawn. (laughs) (laughs) You you did great. I'm very happy with that. Yes. Okay. So Seth is Fred Flasky and Charlize is uh, the Secretary of State, Charlotte. So can you ex- introduce us to uh, the world of Longshot? Yeah, like I play a journalist who finds himself unemployed uh, after his paper is swallowed up by like a big conglomerate. Um, Murdoch style. Come yes, on. Uh, very much so. Um, and meanwhile, he was babysat as a child by Charlize's character, who has gone on to become the Secretary of State and... She's running for president and is hiring a slew of speechwriters, and I get hired to kind of help punch up her speeches. And then romance ensues. Charlize, do you want to chip in with that, or is that pretty much oh, the no, whole... He, he covers that so well. Yeah, we've honed it's this. Impressive. We've been doing this a little while now. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> so impressive. <laughs> so tell us about your Secretary of State, because she is very powerful, and she's very ambitious, and she's going for the top spot. Well, you see her compromising. You see her playing the game. You see her being a politician. And you realize when she meets Florsky and their history is revealed that she might have lost herself a little bit in this process of wanting to make change happen, be a politician that could actually be an action of change. And he really reminds her of who she used to be. And I think there's something very realistic in that. I, I feel like politics is a place that can suck your soul a little bit, but I think she's a good person who's just trying her best in a world that I think is filled with a lot of scrutiny for women. Uh, and she's just trying to keep her head above water and remain a little bit true to who she is. Can you just explain a bit about how the film came about in the first place? And had you guys worked together before? No, it was a, a script that my production company had, and we very quickly were like, oh, I think we should try to get Charlize Theron in this Theron in this movie. And I'm so just not going to say it. You. you ruined this for me. Um, and, uh, and she had a production company and, and they came on and, and together over the course of many years, uh, we worked on developing the script into something that we would be really psyched to go make. And, and we did. When it played at South by Southwest and it went down fantastically well, you, you said then that you were a little bit nervous about, how it was going to be received. Could you explain a bit why? I think it was a combination of the last time I was at that film festival was with Atomic Blonde, and it was one of the most incredible experiences that I've ever had screening a movie for an audience that just felt like the audience for that movie. They tend to be very animated watching movies there. It's a great experience. You're experiencing real film people, people who love film, watching movies. Watch one of your movies and... You know, it was such a great experience that I felt like it would, this will probably not be that great because (laughs) why would one person be that lucky? Um, And also, 
It was the first time we showed the movie. We did test screenings and, you know, as producers, we would go and kind of like get feedback while we were cutting the film. But this was the first time that the movie was done that we really showed it to an audience. And so that is always a little nerve wracking. Yeah. Always. Very nerve wracking. And for you too. Oh, yeah. I get nervous every time. Like... Yeah, I mean, we really... You hide uh, it so well. But you I am, not. but you if you ask well. me how I'm feeling, I'm like, I'm nervous. Like, I get, I'm nervous about it, you know? Um, I want I the people to like our movies, and I really uh, am happy when people do, and I'm un, much less happy, at least, when people don't. And so, and you never really know for sure. Like, I've been blindsided uh, in, in the past, and so... You know, you kind of carry that with you and, and you just, it makes you nervous. You were both producers on the on the film, as you've already mentioned. Does that give you a greater sense of confidence, the fact you've been involved in this process? You haven't just been brought in at the last minute. No, I mean, I feel like it's a dangerous thing to have any kind of overly confident attitude towards yeah. anything that you just, you just don't have a guarantee about. I mean, I think that's why a lot of actors and producers always talk about making films that they just innately have an attraction to. Was this something that I would want to go and see in a theater? Because beyond that, you really don't know. No. You just don't know. And I've definitely done films that, you know, I really thought people would emotionally tap into and they didn't. So there is just, there's no guarantee with this stuff. No. Yeah. And I think it's good to have a little bit of that nervousness because it keeps you on your toes. And yeah. It makes you... Self-doubt is helpful sometimes, is. yeah. <laughs> Did you have any self-doubt about falling down the stairs? No, that I generally uh, am confident. There's a pretty impressive, you just explain what, because I'm sure that's you doing that stunt thing. But It is, it's me doing part of it. It, it. Those stunts are actually a lot more complicated. In order to make those look real and clumsy, actually like a lot of planning and sometimes stunt work and I mean and sometimes visual effects like a lot goes into making those look like goofy kind of sloppy falls but uh what we often do is we go on YouTube and we look <laughs> we look up actual people falling and then we try to we pick one and we replicate it and for the falling down the stairs we found this video of it was like closed circuit television of like a woman in like a subway station so or something it's and horrible. she like started to fall down the stairs and then to try to get her legs back under her oh. she really ran faster and just ended up like propelling herself directly into the ground and sliding a pretty good distance and so we found that and just showed it to the stunt people and we're like I want to do we that we want this yeah <laughs> can I have a musical disagreement with you of course rock set you don't like rock set uh, no I absolutely detest rock set <gasps> More this of an Ace of Base man. No, no. I don't. You just don't like pop. You just took a turn. Yeah, dark well, turn. That's just, okay. I, inter know? I interviewed them once. And okay. were they mean to you? They, they. Well, they're Swedish. You know, they're Swedish, so they're aloof. They just, <laughs> that's just being a Swede. That's Swedish aloof. aloofness. Really? Anyway, ever since then, as soon as their stuff comes, I'm thinking, oh, no, you... Because in the movie, it's a very important It is. Track yeah. It bummed you, you out. Yeah, and I was thinking, really, of all the songs that you <laughs> What did Roxette do to you? Oh, my gosh. Were they really that? They were that bad. Mm-hmm. Wow. Really? Just, just <gasps> anyway. You were wounded by Roxette. Yeah. So, well, they've brought a lot of people together. So I, enjoy, well. I enjoyed the movie. <laughs> apart from, can I, Shalise, you were talking about the tone of the film. And one of the six, obviously, the gags are fantastic, and which is why it'll be such a hit movie, I think. It seems to have a contemporary feel. It feels like it's a movie for 2019. I mean, the environment... We've got the protests going on in London at the moment. It also has a feminist feel to it. I don't know. 
that must make you feel very happy that it it's managed to succeed, not just being a comedy, but to feel very relevant. Yeah, no, for sure. And thank you for saying that, because that was definitely something that we talked about a lot and really paid a lot of attention to and worked really hard to achieve. And there's a lot of moments like that in the film that feels like, you know, oh, we we must have just taken a lucky guess. Yeah. But <laughs> it was all very specifically thought out and planned. I feel like when Seth and I got together to talk about this, one of the first things that we talked about was that we both wanted to make a movie that had a throwback feel to the romantic comedies that we both loved, but also felt like something that could be timeless, not as only of this time, but can feel like was something that you watch in 10 years and there's something about it that still feels relevant. And yeah. I think we try to cover issues. They're just fact. Like, yeah. no, it doesn't matter how you feel about it or where, you're, where you stand with a lot of this stuff that we cover in the politics or in feminism. Or, they're just factual. Like, these yeah. are things that are happening today. And if you watch this movie, you will feel like we're all living in the same world. Like, yeah. we're not trying to tell you or have any commentary about it one way or the other. We're basically just acknowledging that this is the world right now. And so it's hard to play a female character and not have it feel like it is a woman living in this time mm -hmm. where if you were in politics, the scrutiny would be way worse than your male counterparts. Yeah. And Roxette should be in it. Yeah. <laughs> and that Roxette is a good band. These objective truths that you, we just, just all fact. deal with. Yeah. It is a fact. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to have to, we'll park that just yeah. uh, ju just for the moment. I'm going I'm to turn you. Yeah, I, exactly. Now, yeah. With, now I have what, a mission. What are you going to tell me with? <laughs> what, what, they, they've going, made all their music. I'm gonna say yeah, they, it's they all out have, there already. We're going to have them apologize to you. Joy, <laughs> Joyride was a terrible song. Oh, I, man. I so disagree Fading with you. Like flowers? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I feel like they might have just had a bad day. Do you? Okay. Okay. That, 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 Every that sweet may, has a bad that day. That may well be true. <laughs> just one more, one more thing on the contemporary side, just because I still think part of this movie is a time, you know, is, is a movie that could have been done 20, 30 years ago. But also at its heart, it also feels like you're attempting to get it, to plug into the kind of relationships that American society is prepared to find acceptable which maybe you wouldn't have been able to do 10, 15 years ago. One of the main draws to making this movie, like creatively for me, as we talked about it, was like it became very quickly like a great format to really include modern culture. And not a lot of movies, it seems like, even recently have been attempting to comment on culture or society or not even comment on it, but like acknowledge it. And I think that was like a very ripe opportunity for us comedically especially was like oh no one else is even acknowledging reality as it exists today in film we can just start acknowledging this stuff gender dynamics power dynamics not even like the political side of politics but the cultural side of politics uh, all that stuff just no one really at least in movies is talking about it and again for these types of relationships like the idea one of the things I loved was this idea of a guy abandoning his, his career ambition to pursue a personal ambition and that he finds himself getting like all the gratification that he thought he would get out of his job just out of supporting someone else basically and I thought that was not a story I had seen yeah. told a lot that I really thought was interesting you know? I just want to mention in this interview that Andy Serkis puts in another extraordinary turn he really does <laughs> in, a, in a way in fact it was a couple of scenes in before I realized that it was Andy Serkis a lot of people I think have no idea he's in the movie 
Okay. I know. Including him, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie's Tully was one of my favourite films of last year. Thank I, you. Abs- I absolutely blew me away. And are you working with Diablo Cody again? Oh, I would love to. She's working on Jagged Little Pill. Uh, Alanis, stage, like yeah, an Alanis yeah. Morissette film? Yeah, no, it's now, that would be it's fine. A, it's it's a, a play York. based on yeah. Alanis Morissette? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. What? I know, isn't that incredible? As a Canadian, I'm appalled I wasn't told of this. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I adore her. I adore the combination of her and Jason. I feel like the two of them have helped me be able to, you know, achieve the storytelling that I wasn't necessarily given the opportunity to. And I'm super grateful to them and I feel like it's a little bit like that reality show Sister Wives you know <laughs> like we are both his wives his sister and, wives uh, and yeah. his sisters and sister- best yes, of both worlds are. yes exactly <laughs> and he is the husband Seth, do we see you in Lion King next? Is that uh... yeah that's the you don't technically see me but you will hear me in Lion King and is it not live action uh, it is. I. It, I. I mean, I'm a warthog in the movie, so I don't. But uh, it this is, is Pumba. Yeah, exactly. I did. I did not go through an Andy Circus esque <laughs> transformation to, to achieve that. Um, it was done by uh, yeah people in another place. How dare you? Why did you not? Yeah, okay. but you will hear me in the Lion King. <laughs> Charlize and Seth, thank you very much. And is, if there's one rock set track I need to take away to 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 reconsider, what what would it? I mean, it must have been love. Just no, keep listening to it. Then, then, then there's no saving you. Some people, you know what? Some people can't be saved. You, like if, if you don't want help, then there's no then there's no helping someone. <laughs> Charlie's trying and Seth Rogen. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> that is a real bummer to hear. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Very easy. So we ended up having quite a good time. Uh, so I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that, that Seth Rogen laughs in real life. It was exactly amazing, the way he laughed. It is an amazing laugh. So we'll talk long shot this side of the news and the other side sure. of the news, but take it away. I mean, what's interesting is you talk there about uh, the the fact that, that, that you know the film has uh, political relevance and all that sort of stuff, but it, but it also has elements of kind of you know the gross out comedy. So it is on on the one hand, it's like a kind of strange collision of the sort of humour of American Pie, There's Something About Mary, with the sort of media satire of Wag the Dog. And, of course, it's co-written by Liz Hanna, who was Golden Globe nominated for The Post. So I mean, you can see where all this sort of stuff comes from. And at the very beginning, we meet Seth Rogen as Fred Flosky, who is in, in, uh, infiltrating a neo-Nazi group. And very, very early on, he falls out, jumps out of a window, bang, onto the floor below. So you're kind of, OK, fine, you know, we, we've got that stuff. And you talked about the falling downstairs stuff. And he works for a radical publication which is uh, bought out by this kind of Murdoch Maxwell-like, you know, media mogul, played un- by Andy Serkis in a manner that is even more unrecognisable than totally. Gollum, frankly. Totally. I mean, I even you told me, and I even I was like three scenes in for. Oh, went because that you know that's that's Andy Serkis. And then the whole the, the nub of the story is that on the one hand, they're the old couple, they're chalk and cheese. He's, you know, flailing around and anarchic and all over the place and schlubby. She, on the other hand, is kind of uh, controlling, completely in control. She had this idealistic youth. Now she's become a career politician. She sees a chance to run for president. She sleeps standing up with her eyes open what do you got micro napping that's weird that yeah but that's you know but that's it's a it's a good gag and it's a kind of and an awful lot of the time with this kind of comedy it basically comes down to do you find the central couple funny in their interaction together do you like them do you like what happens when they're together and the answer is in this case yes i mean i laughed more in long shot 
than I have in many uh, comedies recently. And I, I really, I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed it because I'd asked you beforehand and you'd sort of told me the, the sort of, you know, well, partly something about Mary, partly, you know, yeah. wag the dog out. Funny and gross out. Yeah, which didn't, which, I, and there are bits of it that I, that I like more than other bits of it, but I did consistently laugh all the way through. Firstly, we know that Seth Rogen can do this stuff in his sleep because that kind of clever schlub figure is something that he's parlayed over a number of movies. Charlie Thron's um, uh, performance is different because although she has definitely done comedy before, I mean, you know, she was in Woody Allen films. She's done the 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 the, the Reitmans with uh, Diablo Cody writing, which although they're kind of they're dramedy, that horrible word, they're dramas with comedic elements. She's really funny, and the reason she's really funny is that she understands how to play straight. And how to, you know, she is a, but she, but you don't immediately think of comedy when you think of her. I mean, actually, probably nowadays you think of action because Mad of, Max, yeah, anatomic, anatomic blonde, and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So you, what you get is the the kind of combination of the things. You know, you get the yuck yuck factor, but you also get something else, which is that you you like their characters, you like what happens to them together. Um, I mean, there's all the sort of surrounding comedy about the fact that she works for a president who's a TV star who then becomes president, but actually what he really wants is to break into films. And everyone makes a joke about, it's very hard to break into films. The only two people that have done it are George Clooney. There's a very good joke about whether or not Jennifer Aniston is now a movie. Is she, though? Is she? Or is she? And there's also a terrific gag in which Jeremy Piven formerly a guest on this show is the nub of a very very uh, sharp gag which i enjoyed enormously uh can we talk a little bit more after the news yes, i feel yes, there's yes. more to say lee davis on an email is there any chance that mark's review will include the word schlubby oh yeah well of course i don't think it's a long shot i think he's already done it lee a couple of times when uh, when jagged little pill came up at the tail end of that in the in the conversation and we started talking about Alanis Morissette. I yeah. thought I was going to have the chance to say, oh, and by the way, Seth and Charlize, a fly in your Chardonnay was not ironic. <laughs> it's not ironic. It's just, just annoying. It's just really <laughs> annoying. Complete misuse of the word irony in the song Ironic. Anyway, part two. And if you just joined us, you missed Charlie's Thron and Seth Rogen talking about Longshot. But we'll continue. And Mark talking, talking about Longshot. And Mark talking about Longshot. Um, to which I just had a couple of postscripts before. I know we have some yeah, mail on. about it. So um, I think O'Shea Jackson Jr. as the sidekick is really, really in, uh, enjoyable. Quite often those kind of sidekick roles um, seem sort of underwritten and underdeveloped. But there is this lovely thing that his friend has become fantastically successful. And when he, when he turns up at his business, he says, you know, oh, something terrible happened to me. I've lost my job. And his friend says, that's it. Fine. OK, well, we're just cancelling the afternoon. He says, you're allowed to do that. He says, look at... Look at the look at the office I'm in. This says, I mean, he says it in rather more fruity language. Yes, fruity language <laughs> that, uh, that that I am allowed to. So I like that very much. I did think that that Andy Circus was terrific, and it's great because it rem it reminded me again that thing about you know in America they call them character actors here we call them actors. Very good. Meaning you know somebody who looks and appears wholly different between films. It's not to do with being buried under a ton of makeup. It's to do with being a, a a completely different person, a completely different character, because that is what acting does. And uh, worth pointing out that although Andy Serkis and the Imaginarium are, the are at the absolute cutting edge of, you know, digital acting, as he said himself when he was on the show, it's all acting, isn't it? You know, and he is a really, really fine actor. I was thinking when I suddenly clocked that that's who it was, and I was thinking it's amazing if you put that performance next to his performance as Ian Dury in Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. I mean, it's unrecognisable. Um, so, the, I mean, the headline of it all is that I laughed 
much more than I expected that I was going to. Sometimes I kind of laugh slightly guiltily, thinking it's a crass joke, but I'm still going to laugh at it. Sometimes I laugh because I thought it was it was satirically pointed, and there are, and it kind of dovetails with my overriding view of politics. I mean, I do think, you know, the, the, the gags about a TV star being in the White House just being concerned only about their ratings was funny. And I also like the fact that there's that, there's this, the central story is that she has become successful, but she might have lost sight of the thing that made her, you know, so idealistic uh, as a, you know, a, as a youth, as a teenager. And through this kind of, you know, this shambolic uh, interaction with, with Fred Flasky, that what she, what she remembers is the reason that she got into doing this in the first place. I mean, it's, it's a film with a... It is a very benevolent film, isn't it? It's a film which likes the characters and its heart is in the right place, even when sometimes it is waving its bottom in your face. Yes, and way. it is. And, <laughs> you know, it deserves its 15th certificate. Oh, yeah, 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 no question. And you and people of all ages will enjoy it. However, I would say don't go with your teenage offspring. Oh, no, no. It's, um, you see, know, it's see, there is, when, when we said your own age. When we said there is gross out American pie, something about Mary kind of elements, there are. Yes. And, you know, they're very... They, they are. They are. They are both. You know, in 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 America, they, there's that phrase "yuck yuck," which means laughs. You know, "yuck yuck" is a form of laughter. It's also "yuck." Uh, yeah. Does is that half as funny as "yuck yuck"? No, no. It's a, no. It means you know "yuck" as in "ooh." Oh ooh. yeah. There's a lot of that. As in "ooh." You know. Um, emails on this. Some people have seen it already. Bill says. The unlikely pairing of Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron, she was hugely successful. It Both was. actors utterly nailed their roles with fine support from hilarious O'Shea Jackson Jr., an unrecognisable Andy Serkis, and Boys to Men, among others. Yes. You see, I'm a Boys to Men agnostic as well. I thought it, I have to say, I thought it was very, very uh, stand up of you to be absolutely upfront about uh, the rock set. About rock set. But the which, incidentally, I share with you because, oh, okay. because it was true that when that was the song, that was being used. It was like anything but this, right? Anything but this. I didn't. I almost thought. Can I say I don't like boys to men as well? But I thought I'd gone far enough in the conversation. Um, Bill says it's a big risk trying to juggle politics, humour, gender politics, romance, some slapstick, and the obligatory bit of gross-out comedy in such a way as to make them equally effective. But it's one which pays off here. It bothers to develop interesting, sympathetic characters and its running time doesn't remotely show. I hope Mark, Mark liked it as it smashed the 10 laugh test for me. Oh, yeah. Not... It smashes the 10 laugh test within the first half an hour. I left the screening with a big grin on my face and the rest of the audience seemed to have enjoyed it as well. Uh, Katie Veal. Um, Dear Listener's Choice and Podcast Award. Ooh, details in a moment. I've just come out of a preview of Longshot with a couple of friends. This was a very comfortable, easy watch with a feel-good factor and lots of silliness and heart. Longshot looked amazing, had wonderful pace and characterization, and felt very of the moment from the point of view of this very nearly 40-year-old woman. The film dealt with the burgeoning issue of sexism in the media and politics, which has recently, to me, made some older films unwatchable in a sensitive and empowering way. But forget that, it was hilarious. It quickly passed the six-laugh test, and the atmosphere in the cinema was relaxed and collegial, and refreshingly less intense than at the Avengers films. It was... Oh, yeah, no, I'm not going to read that. It's, I mean, it's worth pointing out, you, I mean, you made this point in the interview. It does owe a debt to those kind of screwball comedies in which that's, that's where you would get the forerunners of these characters, you know, proper, properly developed, strong male and female characters 
you know, the, the, in a contemporary setting and with a contemporary, uh, with a kind of you know modern twist. But it does it does fall in that screwball comedy mold, doesn't it? Yes, Owen Amara, age thirty and two thirds, just been to see an early release of Longshot. The latest slightly top shelf rom com. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, we are definitely adopting that phrase. Slightly top shelf. It is, is slightly br- top is shelf. Brilliant. From the genius that is Seth Rogen, who knocks it out of the park once again. Does anyone do heartfelt stoner comedy better? Charlie's Thron in a comedic role was a real surprise, balancing slapstick with genuine heart and the reflecting and reflecting the frustrations and difficulty of being a woman in a world run by grotesque middle-aged white men. We should say too that Charlize Theron does do a a a stoner sequence in which she knocks it out of the ballpark. The story hit perfectly even if it's very obvious where it's going it still feels genuine the soundtrack is superb apart from mm-hmm. Roxanne and Boys to Men <laughs> thoroughly enjoyable. <laughs> Owen Amara. Thank you Owen. Uh, mayo at bbc.co.uk 85058 and as the email from Katie conveniently brought up uh, about the podcast. It's awards. almost as if you've planned this. Hmm. Well, it is the season to, to you know to vote. So please vote now for us in the British Podcast Award. How would you do that, Simon? Well, as we mentioned last week, um, last year's listeners' choice gong or piece of clear plastic is lost in the BBC mail system after successfully travelling around the world in the safe hands of various wood detainees. So we'd really like another one to fill the empty space on the shelf in the downstairs loo and the empty space in our lives. Can I ask you a question very quickly? Have you got the Sony Award at the moment? I don't think so, no. You, I think you have. I don't think I have. No. Why did you ask me if when I asked because you? I, not... Because we're having some painting done and we moved the piano. Well, we've got lots I, of building work being done at the moment. I, but I brought it in. Remember, I wrapped it up in a T-shirt and I brought it in. I brought it in and gave it to you. No, you, the other way. No, not the, the thing, the Sony Award. It's, it's my turn to have it back. Anyway, please. just like Zac Efron so last many. week, you'll have heard today's guests, Charlize Thron and Seth Rogen, not saying vote for us, but we could tell that actually that's what they were thinking. And we're confident of more celebrity non-endorsements in the coming weeks. I met Keanu Reeves again yesterday. And with every look in his eyes, he was saying, this podcast deserves to win again. Was he? Did he actually say those words out loud? It's what he was thinking. As he was contemplating various ways to kill people in his next movie. Did he say them through the medium of modern dance? I got sent a photograph of a bus poster for uh, John Wick 3. And the different bits of the post have been put up in the wrong... The two middle ones have gone the wrong way. So it just said, Jung, Jung, three. <laughs> anyway. The only good. time I have ever met Charlie's Thron was uh, when I, I I chaired an interview for The Devil's Advocate, which was her and Kinani Nunu together. Is that right? Yeah. Well, anyway, yes. So Keanu is on the show very shortly and I'm sure he wants us to win. So do it for us and do it for Keanu. To get us... To eventually shut up about it for a short while, go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. That's all one word, britishpodcastawards, all lowercase, dot com slash vote. And start typing Kerben O'Mayo's film review until you see our faces. Don't press return. Don't. Don't. This makes us vanish and you wouldn't want that. Well, I hope you didn't. Voting will close at 5pm on Wednesday the 15th of May at britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. That's definitely the last time that we're going to mention it. This side of, of the news. It's 16 minutes past three. There's other stuff that's out. Tolkien, or as I like to call it, Hobbity 
Hmm. Uh, directed by uh, Thomas Dome Karakowski, whose previous film was Tom of Finland, which is a biopic of the homoerotic artist, which is actually pretty pretty decent. So this is a biographical drama about J.R.R. Tolkien, creator of Lord of the Rings, obviously, which spawned one of the biggest selling movie franchise. Well, in fact, two of the biggest selling movie franchises of all time, if we if we count the Hobbit movies, is separate to Lord of the Rings. It's, 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 it's the same thing, isn't it? Um, so in the not too distant past, we've had, uh, you know, Goodbye Christopher Robin and we've had Saving Mr. Banks. And now it's sort of Watto Tolkien. And it's the best way of describing it is it's not so much sort of finding Leverland as as losing the Shire. So at the beginning, so Nicholas Holt is the author um, whose life unfolds in a kind of back and forth montage of flashbacks circling around the trenches of the the war in Europe where he's desperately attempting to find and save an old school friend. And from here we flash back to his childhood um, and to uh, his mother falling upon impecunious circumstances, movement from an almost mythical beauty of one area to a kind of hellishly industrial place, Birmingham, as it turns out, Ah, (laughs) as it sort of flags up on the thing. And so, you know, you you have a journey from rural beauty to darkening horror. Hmm. Anyway, he's he's orphaned. He's left to make his way in school among much more privileged kids. Um, but he's lowly, and yet somehow a giant. So he's small, and yet and yet and yet a giant. Hmm. Hmm. And despite the circumstances by which he arrives here, he amasses around him a circle of friends who, um, as they progress to Cambridge and to you know to university, they're more they're more than just a circle of friends. They're they're more of a of a fellowship. Mm. Mm. And he meets the love of his life, uh, Edith Bratt, whom he loves despite being told to, you know, that, that, that he shouldn't. He wants to give her a ring. Mm. But he's forced to choose between love and education, between desire and duty. But in the battlefields of Europe, he sees a kind of devastation that has a mythical, a mythical quality. Mythical. 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 It's, it's, it's like Mordor. Mm. And throughout, he dreams of creating other worlds, using language and life. It's not a name. What? Something else. Celador, it's not a princess's name, it can't be. Celador is a place. An an ancient place, impossible to reach except by the most treacherous climb. It hangs... No. No. It's not a climb, it's not a climb, Celador. Dawn, dawn, road, road, path, it's path. Path through a dense, dark forest. Oh, is it now? And at the heart of Celador, which is actually a shrine, there stands an extraordinary sight. <sighs> is it a proud and opinionated princess? It is a place which is revered by all who know of it, a sacred place marked at its center by... I... By trees. Trees, you say? Trees. Trees, and then the trees, they might talk. And the trees don't talk. <laughs> what, what do you think? I don't know. What happens next? <laughs> I don't know. Have we got any orcs in here? It's pretty orcs at the moment. <laughs> Here's the thing. Well, I, the I mean, look, I don't doubt for one moment that with any you know with any great work of art there is inspiration taken from the you know from 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 the life and 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 first hand experiences of the writer i don't doubt that for a moment and certainly in the case of uh, tolkien you know i'm sure that it's possible to you know to to do that kind of mapping of real life onto 
you know, onto the fictional worlds. What I do doubt is that those real life events played out in quite so much like a kind of televisual soap opera in which every emotional or creative nuance is is so clearly signposted as if the you know the 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 script was taken from the pages of a Brodie's notes primer and i mean it is difficult that when you're when you're making a film about the life of a writer who is whose writing is so revered as inspirational that the writing of the film itself should be so uninspirational which is particularly strange since it is written by you know there's real talent behind the screen with Stephen Beresford. who does such a brilliant job and Pride is the co-writer on it. And it made me think, okay, maybe it's just that the subject matter itself isn't, doesn't offer itself uh, for cinema. You know, part of you has to wonder whether the film exists simply because of the success of Lord of the Rings. I mean, is it, you know, was there an, is it necessary to tell this story? And is it necessary to tell it as a film? Um, and you do find the film kind of really straining at the leash in terms of trying to work round all the things that you're meant to, you know, to feel or implied are are somehow, you know, are contributing to the works that we all now know, whether people know them through reading the books or whether they know them through seeing the films. Because I imagine there is a, there is a section of the audience. I mean, I was ne- I was never a um, Lord of the Rings fan as a novelist, but I thought that the films were absolutely extraordinary. Um, and then I was thinking about, you know, something like Shadowlands, you know, the, the the play and the film, which found such rich material in the life of a writer who, you know, again, fantastical worlds. And yet actually in that person, the personal story was every bit as moving and, uh, and you know, actually strangely cinematic, obviously based on a stage play. But actually, I thought a stage play rendered in a very cinematic fashion. Um, you'll also know that the Tolkien estate have distanced themselves from the film. They had distanced themselves sight unseen. This is not, and this has to be clarified, it's not that they saw the film and didn't like it. It's that they weren't involved in the film and they issued a statement just recently saying, we wish to make clear that they do not approve of or authorise or participate in the making of the film, do not endorse its content in any way, which is kind of different to saying, you know, this is it's a bad film. It's just saying we're not involved in it. And actually, recently there's been a there's been an interview with the with the leading actor saying, well, actually, I think it was a grandson or somebody was peripherally involved on the outside. The, the the point is, in the end, if you're going to if you're going to take on the story of a writer whose writings have inspired not only you know so much affection through readers, but have also inspired the Lord of the Rings films, which whether you're huge fans of them or not. They are, you know, they are one of the biggest. They're up there with Star Wars and you know Avengers and kind of you know biggest movie franchises evs. So you have to find something that is inspiring to do with. And I think the the film doesn't. I mean, it may be, it might be that the Tolkien estate are just protecting their investment because you know there are other you know versions of stories to be told. I think there was recently a, a sale to, of some rights to, to to Amazon. I just thought the problem with the film was it did feel chubby hmtastic. And it's always going to be a problem when you're telling the life story of somebody who has created a great work of art and you have to tread carefully around those things. That was why when John Ronson, and I should again credit John Ronson, it was John Ronson who came up with the chubby hum phrase. And it, I think you, sh- I think you do need to well, it, it, it explain was, that. He was talking about there was a, a biopic of the life of uh, Karen Carpenter, and uh, it's it not not the um, not Superstar, which is a really interesting film, but it was a television movie. And there is a moment in it in which she reads a review of a Carpenter's gig, 
which refers to the drummer as chubby. And and she goes, chubby? Hmm. And this is like the, the most crass way of somehow reducing everything that you know about what then subsequently happened to Karen Carpenter, which is a really properly, you know, important and tragic story down to the level of something which is just just completely facile. I mean facile, isn't it? completely facile. And so that became John Ronson's phrase for the moment in those movies, which completely inadequately it's, you know, it encapsulates the thing that's actually going on in the real life story. I mean, Tolkien isn't, it's not a, it's not a bad movie. It's just a very, very pedestrian movie, which when you're talking about the creator of the Lord of the Rings does not seem to be enough. Uh, this is Five Live, talking movies till four o'clock. You can email mail at bbc.co.uk. The text is 85058. You could tweet us. At Wittertainment, what else is out? Uh, Vox Lux, which is the new uh, film by actor-turned-director Brady Corbett, who made Childhood of a Leader. The story is broadly about uh, a young girl who survives a school shooting and then goes on to become an international pop star in the wake of that. It's a film about fame, about how violence and celebrity become intertwined, about how news becomes commodified, about how the press can build people up to knock them down. So the film's divided basically into two halves um the first half Rafi Casti is Celeste Morgan who tries to talk um a gun-wielding pupil into letting her classmates go during um a hideous shooting and she herself is is caught up in it she survives and she later sings a song at a memorial service with her sister Ella played by Stacey Martin and the song then goes viral. It becomes a kind of a unifying anthem, a kind of an anthem of defiance. And the second half of the movie is later on, uh, in which her character is played by Natalie Portman, who now has her own daughter, played by Cassidy. And the songs are uh, written for Marcia and uh, performed by their respective players. And in the first half, she's she seems sort of fragile and innocent and yet also driven. In the second half, she's transformed into an altogether more um, messed up character, hugely successful, but now with with the alcohol problems, estranged from the daughter who she's failed to raise. And now increasingly the subject of hostile press conference, uh, press coverage about her image, her past, her injury and her legacy. Listen, there are three classifications of gunshot wounds to the spine. I'm type three, which means that the bullet is lodged in my intervertebral disc space. Now type three injuries are further subdivided into a, spinal injury without perforation of abdominal viscera, and B, spinal lesions with perforation of abdominal organs. Now, thankfully, I'm type A, but it's no secret that I'm on meds for my injury and I never should have been behind the wheel of a car that night. Josie! You know, I didn't mean to upset you by that. I no. used to be treated like I was a hero, and then they start talking about me like I'm trailer trash. But that's what this show is about. It's about rebirth. I mean, it's a very strange film, quite literally a film of two halves. You know, um, the first half is a strange mixture of sort of you know, of Elephant, the Gus Van Sant, and something closer to the, the strange feeling of Brothers of the Head, which is a film that was not seen enough, but was a really interesting film. And the second, um, the second half of it morphs into something which is closer to, I suppose, the opening movement of The Fisher King and later on the concert scenes from Breaking Glass, you know, the, the Hazel O'Connor film. And... Uh, Natalie Portman is very strong in the role. I think originally it was Rooney Mara was down there, and it is hard to imagine anybody other than Natalie Portman pulling it off. But the problem is that there is a disjunct between the first and second half. 
that she seems to be quite literally a different person, whereas other characters, you know, follow through, albeit in changed roles. But the through thread is Jude Law as the manager, the person who sees uh, in the, the, the young survivor and singer something which he thinks can then, you know, be turned into a saleable commodity and who then stays with her throughout the career. And he's really good. I mean, Jude Law is really good in this film. He got married today. Oh, I didn't know that. Congratulations to him. I'm sorry. I, I, I have an absolute lack of interest in film stars' personal life. Oh, well, that's, that's great. So congratulations. He's really, really good in this, partly because um, he, the consistency of his character. I mean, weird, you've seen AI, right? The uh, Steven Spielberg movie. I never, I'm not sure he okay. did, actually. He plays, in, I think he's terrific in AI, in which he plays Gigolo Joe, who isn't the central character of the film, but actually, weirdly enough, is the th- one of the threads that runs right the way through it. And, and his, his character in that film is more central than the narrative would have you believe. And I think the same is true here. Um, it's not that the characters are similar. It's just it's to do with the way in which the movie threads together these ideas, these sort of contrapuntal ideas. Incidentally, um, the incidental score, the orchestral score, not the pop songs, um, is by Scott Walker, um, who whose work I have always admired enormously. And there is this kind of Herman-esque strings thing going on in the background, which which I think really brilliantly accompanies the action. So it is it is very strange and not wholly successful, but I think Jude Law is really terrific in it. And I think that I would always rather watch a filmmaker take a risk and attempt to do something really adventurous and not entirely succeed than see somebody play it safe. Also, I do know that there are people who absolutely, for whom the movie absolutely works. Robbie Collin, for example, is a very big fan. I think he called it A Dark Star is Born, which is a terrific phrase, um, which, for which I'm, I hope to have given him proper credit. I, I, I thought it, it, it has major flaws in it, but I did think it was fascinating and interesting, and I think Jude Law is just great in it. And he was on the show a couple of weeks ago with Edith. That podcast is still available should you wish to uh, download that. Mark's used Contrapuntal for the second week on Oh, the sorry. Spin. No, that's it's fine. No, it's, it's very impressive. I'm just making a note. Beg your pardon. I'll try not to use it again. Uh, Dominic Fluid saw Vox Lux at a preview screening a couple of months back. Really loved it. The story is very engaging. Now it's told with an incredible performance by Rafi Cassidy, who criminally doesn't even appear on the poster, let alone top billing. And it's a perfect opportunity to experience the late Scott Walker's score, which really demands to be played loud. (laughs) Having said this, I'll admit I did feel like the first act was the actual film and the second was Vox Lux, a 10-year anniversary reunion special. Not just because of the time jump, but the second half has a significantly slower pace with little significant plot development, becoming more of an indulgence in Natalie Portman's portrayal. This is far from a bad thing, but I did find myself drop out of the film. Still, I'd absolutely recommend catching it in cinemas. Uh, Dominic, thank you very much, Dee, for the email. TV movie of the week, Jason D. Goddard says, Maps to the Stars is great. I'll go for society. Haven't seen it for decades and in the mood for some squelchy effects. So who's that email from? Jason D. Goddard. Jason, Jason, Jason. What? Yeah, you you know you you know me well. Really? Well, yeah. Alex Arlett, my pick, and hopefully Mark's, has got to be one of the best body horror picks that Cronenberg didn't have a hand in making, Society. 
David Steele, but not that one, has to be Dracula. The Cushing and Lee confrontation at the end is still one of the most exciting things I've seen in a film. Ian Wright, but not that one. It's a toss-up <laughs> between John Wick and The Raid 2, for me. Two of the best action films of the last decade. Mark will either pick When Marnie Was There or Maps to the Stars, as he gave both them glowing reviews. Bill Pickard. Absolutely, when Marnie was there, it was the first Japanese animation I watched with my daughter. It's one of our favourites, along with the wonderful Your Name. I loved the magical, sometimes melancholic atmosphere. I thought it seemed to have a British sensibility, which, as I discovered, comes from the equally beautiful source novel. Naomi Thornton, when Marnie was there, it took... Uh, it was a book I loved as a child, but I thought I was pretty much the only person in the world who remembered it. So it was a truly spine-tingling moment when I found it had been turned into an animation. Uh, what is our TV movie of the week? Well, it's a double bill, and Jason, Jason, Jason was on the money. So it's um, on BBC uh, Two, 11 o'clock on Sunday night, is Maps to the Stars, the Cronenberg, which is fantastic. And at 10 to 11 at night on Saturday on the Horror Channel, it is indeed Brian Usner's Brilliant Society, which is one of those... Um, I mean, I love Brian Usner's films. I think he's a really interesting filmmaker and he's also fantastically good company. Um, but Society is just... It's that plastic reality made flesh thing. It's really, really great. And what, of course, what is that plastic reality? It's made flesh? visual metaphor. Um, is it? Yeah, Yusna said this thing in this documentary that I made in nineteen eighty, whenever it was back then. Um, and he said, you know, you look at that. He was talking about um, that bit in Nightmare on Elm Street when she's holding the phone and the tongue comes out of the phone. And he said, that's not gore. That's plastic reality. And it was like the way in which horror films can visualise metaphorical ideas. And, of course, Cronenberg was so much at the centre of that with what he was doing with The Brood and, you know, Scanners and Shivers. And then Yusner picked it up and ran with it. And society is just great. Society is really brilliant sociopolitical stuff with more scrunginess then you can possibly the shunting sequence in society. You, you have to shunting. Yes, I'm not. I'll say no more okay. because some people may not have seen it. I haven't seen it. No, you should see it. Okay. So is it, a train, is it like a train in a side? Exactly like a train. Is exactly okay, that's like what that. the shunting. That's right. So a train yeah. shunts another. It's carriage into a siding. That's exactly what it's like, but it's not trains. Okay. And when's that on? That is on the Horror Channel at 10 to 11 at night on Saturday. And Maps to the Stars is 11pm on Sunday on BBC Two. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Matthew T. Reynolds. Well, everyone's putting middle initials in here. Fantastic 4-2. The Rise of the Silver Surfer is a wasted opportunity. Nobody wants a gassy Galactus. Bad Grandpa was poor but had a couple of giggles. Last Airbender was dull. And on the dubious ground... but. Get Hard is properly obnoxious, not funny and determined to be ugly. Yeah. A willfully bad film and clear winner. Yeah. Somewhere out there, a young bright thing has written an algorithm to identify when you can watch Will Ferrell and Kevin Hart, both of whom have done some good things, but I'm pretty sure it can't be in the same film. Jez Garrett, Bad Grandpa is one of the funniest films in this decade. It isn't. It, it should be actual TV movie of the week, the funniest film since the Borat movie. Well, and 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 there we are. Rob O'Connor, it's a shame that when Silver Surfer comes to the MCU that it's unlikely he will be played by Doug Jones again, with or without the Lawrence Fishburne voiceover. <laughs> uh, Fantastic Four <laughs> 2 is not a good film, but that's one aspect they captured perfectly. Jen Cresswell, this is done in dialogue. Everyone. It's impossible to ruin Avatar, The Last Airbender. M. Night Shyamalan. 
Hold my beer. Hold my beer. Very good. Gerard Sweeney, get hard. Look at the cast list. Look at the poster. Look at the trailer. Nominate it for So Bad It's Bad. Make Homer Simpson woohoo noises as Mark agrees with you. What is our TV movie of the week? So bad is bad. Woohoo time, of course. It's Get Hard, which is horrible. Who's in that? Anyone? Yeah, Kevin Hart and um, oh, is that, yeah, yeah. That, you've just, literally just read out an email well, about it. But yes, but that was all. It also mentioned Fantastic Four and Bad Grandpa. Okay, so, right. So that and when can I avoid? You can avoid Get Hard, get hard on Sun on Sunday ten ten at night on Sunday on five. All right, I'm busy then anyway. Oh, good. That's, that's great. That's fine. Okay, because it's the you're uh, otherwise occupied. Well, it's the final final episode of uh, Lino Gigi. Oh, okay. and and I think that might have finished at ten o'clock. Is that There'll good? Be lots to discuss. Okay. And yes, it's good. No, yeah, it's splendid. It's the end of the sixth season. Okay, and it's very exciting. We good. should we should discuss that. But you haven't seen it. I haven't so seen it. What is the point? What is the point? It's sixty minutes to four o'clock. Something else is brand new. Curse of La Llorona, which is also known as the Curse of the Sweeping Woman. Sleeping Woman. I'll do that again. Also known as the Curse of the Weeping Woman. Directed by Michael Chavez, who's, in my case, the curse of the sleeping critic, I have to say. Directed by Michael Chavez, best known for um, doing actually some quite creepy creepy pop music video and a short film, horror short called The Maiden. Um, this is part of the ever-expanding, conjuring cinematic uh, universe, and I think he's bringing us uh, Conjuring 3 soon. Um, so, 1673, uh, Mexico, a... Uh, deranged with grief crazy woman does something terrible to her children hundreds of years later the legend of la llorona the uh, the weeping woman still haunts people including um uh, a mother who is arrested for locking her sons in a cupboard but insisting that she was trying to save them from la llorona the weeping woman so now linda cardellini is a 1970s care worker whose case this was but now she finds herself cursed by la llorona is and Father it? Perez, well, it's, so Father Perez is back. We saw him previously battling. There's a kind of, there's a, there's a really tenuous connection with the demon doll, you know, the Annabelle demon doll. And um, so as is now standard, the, the, the spectre of Dalarona, the weeping woman, is basically a cross between Marilyn Manson and an angry nun. And appearances are marked by a series of, Loud silences followed by very loud bangs, you know, with all sort of screamy, crashing, toothy close-ups. And where is some of the the Conjuring movies or some of the movies in that in that universe have attempted to do something interesting, something atmospheric, something creepy? This really is massively uninterested in uh, in, in character or narrative. It it seems to be entirely a series of mechanical quite 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 bang shriek close up screamy nun ah you know not nun screamy screamy weepy woman um with, with of making no sense at all other than the mechanical thing about if you see it in a cinema which got a very loud sound system and you're in any way any more creeped out by weepy marilyn manson nunny look-alike i mean honestly there are times that we just think i actually they they all look the same now the scream. If you go back to the Eileen Dietz face from uh, Exorcist, okay, the face of Captain Howdy, which appears for something like in total 1.2 seconds in the film, and that's the sort of that's the the Naples Ultra of the terrifying 
that you know no more that you know it's the the you know or I even actually, I haven't it, seen it so I don't get the face or the okay so there is a face that appears yeah this is how you do it there's a face that appears in the exorcist as a as a almost subliminal image right. okay and it is a white face in this kind of sh uh, like this uh, a silent scream of horror and it appears really subliminally for two frames during a dream sequence in the original version. And then it comes back later on during the, and you, you're not even sure that you've seen it, but it's so creepy that it stays in your mind. And now it's just like, okay, let's just do the white creepy face that now looks like Marilyn Manson. And we'll just do that over and over again. Every seven minutes, we will just go straight back. And then, and it's just, I, I was so bored and so depressed by the mechanics of it. You know, it's the, 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 the funniest moment in the film is when, or the most interesting moment in the film is when Linda, Linda Cardellini is in the house. And because it's the seventies, Scooby-Doo is on television and Velma walks across the screen and you think, oh, that's so metatextual because she played Velma in the live action version of, uh, you know, it's, is it meta or what? Boom. And indeed Tish or Tosh quiet. It's, but that was better than my joke. So I'm going for that. Boom. And indeed Tosh. You've forgotten one aspect. Go on. Which is picked up here by, uh, Jack, which was, email. it's unfortunate that the titular antagonist name La Llorona rhymes with the popular knack single. Yes, La La La, 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 La Once that gets into your head, <laughs> you can't get her appearance no longer has the desired effect. On a more serious note, it's another addition to the quite quite bag sub bang sub genre that has plagued horror cinema for the last decade. Love the show, Steve. Regards, Jack. Thank you, Jack. It is exactly that. Uh, what's this? What's this thing about don't press return? It, well, if you if you press return too soon, you have to start the process all over again. You you, pre you just follow the instructions. Okay, and don't press return. No, because okay. it makes us vanish. And okay, that's all. Very okay, good. okay, fine. Uh, so, uh, what else is out? Uh, well, um, as you know, last week we had uh, on the program the stars of Extremely Wicked, Shockingly yes. Evil, and Vile, which is now out this week. A drama about the uh, life and trial of the serial killer Ted Bundy. Um, the title taken from the judge's assessment of the killer, which is delivered in the film by John Malkovich, who is having a good time. He's clearly having a very good time. Directed by Joe Berlinger, who, as you pointed out last week, um, is also the director of Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes, which is the, the documentary about uh, about this same story. So it's it's a strange kind of dramatized half of a weird, you know, an unexpected double bill. Zac Efron is Bundy, who we see meeting and seducing Liz Kendall, played by Lily Collins in a second role of the week. We've seen that she was in T Tolkien before. Um, she has a child. Ted doesn't care. He seems charming and paternal, and she loves him, even when he runs a stop sign and is arrested on suspicion of kidnapping and worse. It's about another missing girl, isn't it? It's a mistake, Joe. The news said King County is looking at him in connection to the two girls that disappeared from Lake Sammamish that one summer. You remember that sketch that we saw? It looked just like him. That sketch looked like everybody. Well, his name is on a suspect list. There were over 30,000 names at one point. Every brown-haired guy with a Volkswagen bug. It's a mistake. The police said he was cleared. How do you even know that? And why is he in jail? And how did his name get on that suspect list? I think you should leave. I think you should leave. So it's a very odd film. Um, the 
one of the things that's important is that it's not... I mean, there have been previous films about Ted Bundy. In fact, there have been films about almost every infamous serial killer. And the kind of the height of the serial killer film boom was kind of around the time that Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer came out, which was a film that very much was about what the audience is doing, wanting to, you know, wanting to watch a film about a serial killer. And then there was a there's a Matthew Bright film about Ted Bundy, which I have to say I, I was not a fan of. And what you have here is a, a film which is um, inspired by the book The Phantom Prince, um, authored by Elizabeth Kendall, about her life with Ted Bundy. And it's taking as its main focus how it is that somebody can be taken in by a character who, as played by Zac Efron, is bizarrely sort of charming and charismatic. So what the film doesn't do, and I have to confess that I was very relieved by this, it's not concentrating on the crimes, it's not concentrating on the appalling horrors. It's concentrating firstly on the people who appear to be taken in by him, and then on the courtroom, which he sort of plays as a theatrical stage, because crucially it's being televised. And there's a thing at the beginning of the when the, the, the judge says, you know, this being the sunshine state and we do things in the sun, you know, how sort of appropriate. But it's also about the way in which this has all become a kind of form of mass entertainment. And I think that um, I do think Zac Efron is really is good in the role. Lily Collins was saying last week during your interview that it's funny that he's had some he's caught some flack as a result of making the film. And she said, I think it's because, you know, I'm not sure that somebody else would have got that. I mean, anybody who's followed Zac Efron's career knows that he's a very, very versatile actor and he can do, you know, like a proper actor. He can, you know, he can dance and he can do horror and he can do comedy and he can do all these. And I think he is very good. I'm not sure that the film itself gets us beyond actually understanding much about either um, the central, but the killer or what exactly why it is that, that the people around him are kind of taken in. I mean, I felt like there was, there is more going on. I, I did feel watching it. Actually, I, I you know, I'd like to see the doc. Have you seen the documentary series? Yes. It's, oh, no, the documentary series I have not yeah, seen. No. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but I think that, that what, it, what it... So it doesn't quite delve deep enough into the subject of, of the film but partly I, I think because you know the, the subject is so horrific is so horrifying and what it's trying to do is to not do that I think it isn't trying to you know do some kind of glamorous entertaining portrayal heaven knows there are enough movies based on real life atrocities that are exactly trying to do that exploitative I'm thinking I don't think this is I think in a way it kind of skims the surface slightly too much but I do think that Zac Efron's central performance as that incredibly creepy narcissistic um you know somebody who can inveigle people into their confidence is actually well done and also i think the circus of the courtroom is well captured in the film and also which we touched on briefly in the interview is because of the way it's filmed and because it's not the film that you that you yeah. described it is it isn't following him doing his crimes no there will be maybe a Zac Efron audience, which is going to see this, and they don't, particularly in this country, they don't know the story about Ted Bundy, and they go, I don't know, did he do it? Did he do it? Because that's the way it's filmed. Then after a while you realise that he did do it, but it's filmed in that way is to suggest, well, you know, the, the structure of the film is one of those 
Did he do it? Did he not? Well, the structure film is definitely taking the point of view of somebody who has been complete, people who have been completely inveigled into his world and and don't want to believe, don't want to believe, even when all their instincts are telling them this isn't, you know, something is really seriously out of whack. And the film is extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. Which is the phrase which is used by the judge uh, to sum up. In his very strange summing up. Yes, he's very strange summing up because yeah. he's he's kind of playing to the cameras as much, you know, yeah, as well. Isn't yes, he? absolutely. I mean, you know, in the way that John Malkovich is, yeah, exactly. uh, uh, is enjoying it. Okay, what else? Uh, Woman at War, which is a film from the director of, of Horses and Men, Benedict Ellingson, um, a tale of an Icelandic woman who teaches singing, but in her spare time is an eco-warrior. She has declared war in the industrialists who are despoiling the planet. And under the alias Mountain Woman, she goes out with a bow and arrow, fires it over power lines and brings down pylons. This is her purpose, is to basically you know, prevent the despoilation of the planet. Then she discovers that ages ago she put in for, for, as an, to adopt a child. Well, a, an adoption possibility has come up from a child, a Ukrainian child. Can she balance saving Mother Earth with becoming a mother? Will she have to renounce her outlaw status if that's what she's going to do? And the film, I thought, was a treat, not simply because it has a fantastic central performance, which I know is coming up in an email, but also because of the way that um, the film uses music. So our heroine teaches singing, and the singing kind of acts as a counterpoint to the disharmony of the world. And she's accompanied throughout the film by two different themes. One of them is provided by a trio um, with a, you know, a sousaphone, an accordion, and a big sort of almost circus-like drum kit. And another is a Ukrainian uh, vocal group. And these represent... I th- well, in my mind, they represent, on the one hand, the sort of the, the, the warrior element, on the other hand, um, the more sort of personal, internal, maybe maternal element. But brilliantly, they appear in the frame. So as the drama is taking place, whether it's on a mountainside or in an office, the musicians are actually there in the frame. And on the one hand, it's a comedic device because the film is a, you know, has a very strong comedic element. So on the one hand, it's like a, a comic device like in Blazing Saddles where he, you know, he's riding, there's this great theme and he rides up and the whole of the Count Basie Orchestra is there in the middle of the desert. On the other hand, it's an alienation device. It's that thing about, you know, it's telling us that it's a story that's being told. So it's about storytelling. Is it Brechtian? It is Brechtian, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because so much of what's happening there is, a kind of, is to do with mythology and storytelling. But it also functions like, and this will strike a chord with you, like a Greek chorus. Like a Greek chorus mediating between the central story and the audience that's commenting mean. upon and bringing... And, and so weirdly, the effect, although obviously... Brechtian alienation doesn't quite mean alienation in that way. It's to do with distancing. The actual effect of it is to make the experience of watching the film much more intimate. So you find your... It's like hearing the inside of the character's head. And it's funny and strange and quirky, but but it never undermines the central serious thread of the film. So on the one hand, it's like an action film like Mission Impossible that doesn't have guns, doesn't have explosions, doesn't have bloodshed, has a middle-aged woman with a bow and arrow. On the other hand, it's a Greek drama with musicians who are both in and out of the play who are mediating between the action and the audience. On the other, it's a wake-up call film about eco-activism, which is particularly pertinent right now with everything that's going on in the world at the moment. On the other hand, it's a really, really funny comedy with shades of Aki Karismaki, but with a much more kind of disciplined, deadpan, uh, straight-faced manner. I thought it was terrific. And I know we have an email from somebody who I think enjoyed it as well. 
Yes, if I had time to read it out. Go ahead. Uh, Tom in Sydney, I went into Women at War uh, cold, so to speak, as it was on at a convenient time. The big issues of environmental activism and personal responsibility are definitely blended with smaller moments of comedy and even thriller to charming, thought-provoking effect. What was our movie of the week? It's a double bill. Is it? Long Shot and Woman at War. Are we ready to record the next bit of the podcast? We are. Hello, you fool. I love you. Hooray! Join the joy ride. And have you ever heard a less joyful, more miserable band than Roxette? It's just. Oh, they're so groovy. You can hear the plastic. The love game. I knew this would happen. Rubbish. Doesn't deserve to be played, really. I'll tell you, the weird thing was oh, whistling. Oh no, I like a whistle. But no, but that that sounds like a bad echo of the whistle from the Peter Gabriel song from Jeux en Frontier. Games Without Frontiers. Yeah, which is a much which is a good song, but which with a similar whistling bit. It's actually quite good. Hello, you fool. I love you. Now get I want to tear my ears off and stick pins in my eyes right now. Thanks. Never come back. <laughs> um, I tell your phone. It's my stomach, I believe. Oh, was it your stomach? Yes. Somebody's calling your stomach. That's amazing. It's a it's a special communication device which I swallowed. Um, because I kind of swallowed the final email, Tom in Sydney. Dear Iceland and B-Jams, I went into Woman at War cold, so to speak. Very good. As it was very, very well a done. convenient time and the poster looked intriguing. The big issues of environmental activism and personal responsibility are deftly blended with smaller moments of comedy and even thriller to charming. That's right. Thought-provoking effect. The yeah. central performance holds it all together beautifully. I'm off to book holiday to Iceland. It looks lovely. Tom... You're absolutely right. There is a long way from Sydney. But when I was in Iceland last, uh, I spoke to an Australian woman who was working in one of the restaurants there who had been there for a couple of years and had fallen in love with an Icelander. And That sounds like the beginning of a limerick. No, uh, she had, uh, but she was finding the winters slightly troublesome, as <laughs> really? if you're an Aussie. And, but they were going to give up and they were going to move to uh, Australia. So that's going to be quite some... There's a story, contract. isn't there, though, that Iceland and Greenland... Was so called in order to put off invaders that Iceland is actually green and beautiful, and mm. Greenland is actually icy, and so they. Well, I well, mean, it's, I'm sure it's rubbish. Yes, it is rubbish. I don't care. It's not. It's, it's a good not, story. They are both beautiful countries, but neither of them are green. It has to be said. There's a lot of green in 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 uh, women's uh, woman at war. There are no trees in Iceland. There are no trees in Shetland. Paul Dyer. In Tehahi Bay in New Zealand, just been to watch Woman at War at the marvellous Lighthouse Cinema near Wellington. Yeah, my wife and I think this may be this year's Without a Trace, as we're both left with feelings of exhilaration having seen a film full of empathy, comedy and a nuanced look at modern environmental issues. Haldora Gierharo Dostot... There you go. Dostot, I think. Haldora Gierharo Dostot. 
well who done. plays the hero. Hala. Which I think the dotir bit means daughter. Yes, daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is son or daughter. Oh, yeah, so it actually... Like Magnus Magnusson is Magnus, son, of, son Magnus. of Magnus. Exactly. Who plays the hero, Hala, engages us from start to finish as piece by piece we collect clues as to why she is taking so many risks for her cause. She stands out as a modern female hero without the superpowers of Captain Marvel. There is also a great Dickens connection towards the end to look out for. Have seen Endgame this week as well, and Woman at War is in the number one spot, Ooh. according to Paul. Great, I loved uh, it. From New Zealand. Um, very good, thank you very much indeed. So you said you had something else. Yeah, so you wanted to. I, I went this morning to see A Dog's Journey, which is a sequel to A Dog's Purpose, which was... Remember I reviewed this when it came out, which was the uh, 2017 film uh, directed by uh, Lasse Halstrom based on the book by W. Bruce uh, Cameron. And it was kind of this really strange thing about a, a dog being constantly reincarnated. So it's sort of narrated from the dog's from the from the point of view of a single dog soul, which is constantly reincarnated in a number of different dogs. And it became the centre of an animal welfare controversy because there was a video that appeared to show a, a dog being mistreated on set, but the American Humane Association um, did an independent third-party uh, 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 investigation which concluded that, and I'm quoting, that safety measures on the set of the film were in place and the video had been deliberately edited to mislead the public, so the whole thing was all a bit strange. Anyway, so the sequel follows the granddaughter of Dennis Quaid's character. The son died while, um, while his wife was pregnant. The mother is now descended into... Uh, drinking and estrangement from her in-laws. The dog realises that it's now his purpose to... His or her, because actually um, the the dog can be reincarnated as either a male or a female dog, um, to protect CJ, with whom he, he and she intersect at various incarnations throughout their life. And uh, do you want to hear a clip? I'd love to hear a clip, please. Okay, so 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 same same soul of dog, yes, reincarnated in different dogs throughout different points of life of the central character. CJ, okay. got it. Fine. Right. That girl, there's something about that girl. I smell something familiar. It smells like CJ. I remember my purpose. CJ is my purpose. I can't let her get away. I'm coming, CJ! Uh-oh. I can't let Ethan down. Got to get to CJ! Ah, I got this! I got this! I got this! I got this! Oh, I don't got this! CJ, it's me! I'm here to protect you! <laughs> oh, psycho puppy! CJ was a gigantic baby now. Because by that point, CJ is kind of grown up. So, so you, 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 kind of, you get the... You get the general gist of it, okay? Psycho puppy. Yeah, psycho puppy, and uh, voice of Josh Gad, and uh, as as the dog, whose sort of primary Uber name is Bailey, but obviously it turns up as many many different dogs. So again, it, it's it's very peculiar, and I'm not entirely sure who it's aimed at because on the one hand, it's a film about a, you know eternal dog reincarnation. On the other hand, it, the the plot deals with alcoholism, with death with abusive male partners, with cancer and illness, with uh, estrangement and poverty. And all the way through that we have this kind of the, 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 the voice of the dog offering a kind of canine commentary on the human world, not understanding what's going on in the human world other than at a, at a dog level. And 
I mean, yes, it's completely uh, daft and all the rest of it. But here's the thing. See, firstly, I'm a dog lover and you really have to do very, very little to make me go, ah, oh, OK. So I timed it nine minutes in, shed a tear. Literally nine minutes into the film, I shed dear, a tear. Dear, dear. And then, although it's terribly emotionally manipulative and um, all the rest of it, there were three other moments when I, I, could, I could feel the movie reaching out and, you know, grabbing my heartstrings and doing the thing. And I've always had a soft spot for Dennis Quaid anyway because he reminds me of my brother, who I love very much. And so there are just there are just things in the film that are just like triggers for me. And I just and I my critical faculty sort of goes for a little walk while I what plus one of my favorite moments in any film ever is in a matter of life and death when David Niven's pilot has bailed out over the channel and he wakes up on the shore and he thinks he's dead. He's actually on a beach um, and he gets up and he thinks he's in heaven. And the first thing that happens is he sees a dog and he says, oh, good. I always hoped there'd be dogs. And it's a line that just kills me every time. So this is a film about an endlessly reincarnated canine companion being hugely devoted to a singular task, the beginning and end of which is played by an actor who reminds me of my brother. So I just, my, my critical faculty just turns to jelly. And even as I'm going, I, you know, this is, and there's, and there's an element of matter. So I, I'm not, I cannot, I cannot in all good conscience um, pass a critical judgment other than to say, I cry, I literally, I had tears going down my face about three times, even as my rational brain was going, don't you dare, don't you dare be, be sucked in by this. But you were. What a fool. There you go. Have you ever had a Haribo? Yes. You know, every part of you goes, no. Yes. And yet some part of you goes, yes. No, no part of me says yes. And then when I've had one, I feel revolted. Okay. Well, I'd rather have a fruit pastel or a spangle. Yeah, uh, spangles. Or an acid drop. (laughs) Remember acid drops? I do remember acid drops. Sherbet pips. I'd rather have a sherbet pip or a sherbet lemon. Sherbet dip dab. Or... Sherbet dip dab, which always ended up all over your blazer because it was impossible. Chocolate lime, they're the best. Oh, no, I don't like a chocolate lime because that's two things that shouldn't be in the same suite. Chocolate and lime. It's very good, though. No. Flying saucers. It's just mentioned stuff. American hard gums that get stuck in your teeth. Fruit pastels, but only green and yellow. I do like a spangle, though. Do they still make spangles? No. Are they called something else? Probably. We've got, we've got, weirdly enough, blackjacks. We've got a 1950s poster in our bathroom, which is a 1950s man and woman on a beach with a with a beach towel. There's a reason to this, okay? Sophie's getting ready to edit something. No, no, no. It's not. It's it's nothing weird. Um, and it's because it's it's a lovely original old 50s print, and they're on a beach together, and um, uh, he's he's holding a camera, and he's saying to her, "Have you got the film?" And she's saying, "Have you got the spangles?" Well, good 50s moment. Uh, I have lots of 50s memorabilia in our house. Soft centre spangles, they were my favourite. Anyway, no, they, can, we, can we say hello to Bettina Blomstedt? Because she sent us a lot, long email. But anyway, on Sunday, she's on a flight from Helsinki to Shanghai. She's going to spend the next two months working as a knit designer, developing future seamless knits. And she wants to be wished good luck because she's got a nine-hour flight and she needs a bit of cheering up. She has a tendency of suffering from Arles... And she just wanted to mention. So Somebody you know. tweeted to say that they were in floods of tears at the evacuation announcement on the plane. Really? You know, the thing at the beginning. Yes. The... 
Proud Auntie Joe says, I'm writing with a wittertainment-related aunting incident. Um, I was in the garden playing with my delightful niece at the weekend. She remarked that she could see an aeroplane. I asked where it was going to, and she did, without missing a beat, say, the airplane station. <laughs> now, my niece is not a member of the church and barely even a film fan. At the age of three, she's near enough word perfect in the songs of Frozen, well acquainted with Cinderella, Snow White and Moana. And she knows her good lines, Mufasa, from her bad lines, Scar. Very good. And so I could not explain why I found this oddly hilarious. The poor thing will probably have a complex about showing me planes. It leads me to conclude, A, Mark has been subliminally messaging toddlers to share his foibles. B, Mark has uh, an admittedly precocious three... Mark and an admittedly precocious three-year-old three have remarkably similar verbal reasoning skills. Yes, that would be it. And C, I think this, the least likely, it was simply a mildly amusing coincidence. Anyway, thank you, Proud Auntie. No, there, there's no such thing as coincidences. There is. It's rubbish. Of course there is. But, you know, there's it's a phrase, isn't it? There's no such thing as a coincidence. Is that? You have to walk over eggs to get to it, though. So, uh, finally, yeah, an email... I, I have realised now that saying walking on eggs is like airplane station, but you know, you know, you knew what I meant. <laughs> Norway with a K. Yeah, OK, that was, that was a senior That moment. was my favourite. That was my favourite of all of them. Yeah. Anyway, finally, Nelson, who's our pal from Brooklyn in New York. Hello. Dear favourite Brits, given the high standard to which you hold yourselves in every respect, I know that you're always striving to get get it right on the pronunciations of place names. Go on. That's why I just wanted to let you know that the email you received from Vermont in last week's show was not, in fact, from Montpellier, pronounced like the city in France, but from Montpellier. You're kidding. The capital of Vermont and the smallest state capital in the United States. Really? If you want to get it right, you say Montpelier. A few more to watch out for. It's Boise, Idaho. Not, yeah, that I know. Not Boise, Idaho. Yeah, no, I know Boise, Idaho. That I know. Uh, there's Cairo, Georgia. See, as it's spelled, as in the capital of Egypt. Yeah. You say you have to say it's Cairo, Georgia. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, in Washington, S P O K A N E. Spokane. It's pronounced Spokane, as though there isn't an E. Really? Spokane, Washington. And there's Versailles in Kentucky. You can probably guess. Versailles. Versailles. Yeah, there we go. It's three, it's three <laughs> syllables and it's Versailles. <laughs> Sorry we didn't make it any easier for, for you, says Nelson. Hello, hi, bonjour, bonjour, hola, and good day to Jason. And down with language Nazis everywhere. Thank you. Well, we get lots of stuff wrong, so we'll file that away and try and get it right for the next time yeah. we get an email from Boise, Cairo, Spokane, Versailles or Montpelier. That is so wrong, Montpelier. Every single... Spokane particularly bothers me as well because I'm sure that it's a word that's used in um, David Lynch's Fire Walk With Me. And so I'm I'm amazed that yeah. I haven't started... Because, I, you know, I love that film. And uh, Anyway, feel free to, to write in and correct us about pretty much anything because yeah. most people do. Uh, thank you very much, Steve, for listening. And don't forget to vote. You've got oh, another yeah. thing to do. Oh, yeah. The DVD of the week. I forgot. Yeah. I've got... I've lost it. Anyway, thanks for listening anyway. Yeah, th thanks. Uh, there's also DVD of the week, which is still to come. This is exciting sound of two old men ruffling through some papers, isn't it? Are you walking on eggs? Oh, here it is. Hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. It's DVD of the week. Is that Roxette? It's not even funny. You might be wetting yourselves next door. Is this It Must Have Been Love? Yes. 
There you go, there's the answer. Roxette, the worst band in the world. It's certainly the most boring band in the world. Seth Rogen assumed that I was an Ace of Base fan. I know, but I thought that I thought that was a particularly killer. I mean, I think they're even worse, actually, but they just were never really. I also never understood that thing about all that she wants is another baby. What was that about? I don't know. That was Ace of Base, right? That was Ace of Base. That was rubbish. Ace of Bass. <laughs> I think, can he have that? Can he have Ace of Bass? It's over music as well. It'll be difficult to edit. Oh, this is just this disgusting. Close my eyes. And I want to stick pins in, in my, my eyes. <laughs> Okay, I'll tell you anything. I'll tell you where everyone is. I'll tell you where the bodies are buried. I don't care. Just stop playing the rock right. set. There you go. That's Oh, that's so much better. I've never been so pleased to hear the music for DVD of the week. <laughs> hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. This is completely surplus to all requirements. It's like being smacked in the face with a comedy mallet <laughs> of shrieking grimness. That's what you said about one of the contenders for DVD of the week. Oh, was it? Yes. That contender Smacked is... in the face by com- comedy mallet of shrieking grimness. It's Holmes and Watson, a film that included... Oh, God, yes. ...a selfie right. joke at least eight years too late. A film that, despite knowing it was terrible, our tip-top production team made you go and watch anyway. Yes, they did. A horrific memory. I apologise for mentioning it. That's OK. Let's cheer you up with some mortality maths. Nothing like reminding ourselves we're all rapidly hurtling towards death's sweet embrace. Here we go. We're now closer in time to the 2054 World Cup than we are to the original release of The Karate Kid, which gets a 35th anniversary re-release on Monday. You're welcome. So let's find out what everyone thinks should be Davida of the Wook. Stuart Kenny, I think Columbia knew they had a massive flop on their hands with Holmes and Watson. It was filmed back in late 2016, early 2017, and it's taken that long to get here. That long. The fact... They had no screenings for critics. Sums it all up. Owen Kowalski. I'm going with Iron Sky, the coming race for DVD of the week, as I enjoyed Iron Sky for the utter absurdity and B-movie sensibilities, which is more than I could say for even the trailer of Holmes and Watson. Matthew Hudson. Ah, those wonderful school days of the 80s, poncing around the playground, playfully urging one's peers to wax on, wax off, to sand the floor and paint the fence. I can remember the desperate wailing of the headmaster as he shouted at us, with grave concern to stop practising the crane kick on each other. Nothing beats nostalgia for informing one's decisions. I vote for a movie world like it used to be. I vote the Karate Kid. Although Hellboy 2 is better. Neil Hughes got to be the Karate Kid. Arnold from Happy Days teaching one of the outsiders a bit of chop socky. Chop socky. Come on, who didn't try the old crane kick in the playground when they were a kid? Well, I didn't particularly... Then I was too busy sucking on a soft-scented spangle. <laughs> what is our DVD of the week? Well, our DVD of the week is The Vanishing, but not that one. Well, it's The Vanishing, which, which was... One is it? Well, it, it's called... It was originally called Keepers, because it's about the lighthouse keepers, the, you know, the disappearance. I talked about it quite recently uh, when it came out in cinemas. It was only a few weeks ago, and I said it was uh, Shut Up Butwad's best film. Oh. And it's actually... I think it's actually a pretty decent thriller. It is now called The Vanishing. It was originally called Keepers, because also there's, that's a pun on Finders Keepers, which is the thing that sets that in motion. So that's the new DVD of the week. And yes. we are going for, because um, I like to have a new one and an old one, as an oldie, the 35th anniversary, blimey, I can't believe how old I feel now, of The Karate Kid. Excellent, very good. 
And unless there are any more rock set themed surprises. How did I know? How did I know? Did they did they set that up or did you was that? No, I just kind of guessed. I looked at their furtive glances and I thought something's up. Which particular howler is this? This is Joyride. No, we had Joyride already. Oh, so you got oh you got the look. She's got the look. He's singing like he's got that kind of mid-European, middle Europe, Europe It should definitely be a Eurovision contender, shouldn't it? What in the world can make a brown-eyed girl turn blue? Uh, nothing apart from surgery, I wouldn't think. Can you stop playing this because it's actually horrible? BBC Radio 5 Live. Hello, my name is Peter Crouch and Five Live have brought that Peter Crouch podcast back for a second season. This time we're going to delve even deeper into the mad world of professional football. This is from Jason. Hi, Peter. A pal of mine lives in Spain. Over there, you are known as the asparagus. (laughs) Oh, I assume asparagus is a long, thin... What you mean you assume? You've never seen an asparagus? That Peter Crouch podcast with me, Peter Crouch. It is really nice going... Ah. <laughs> Listen, I am not adverse to an ah. Listen and subscribe now on BBC Sounds.